A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 18 in Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I poured a lot today for for my drink. I poured it and then it was only halfway up the glass, so I made another one. <laughs> so it that is, is quite intoxicating for me tonight, I think. Wild, my friend. I'm super excited. So... Your drink is very cool, and we will talk about it in a second. It's very cool for a couple of reasons, but we'll talk about that in a second. But before we go too far into that, today is our third episode discussing The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 13 through 18. But before we get to that, first, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having? So I have a pretty standard margarita. I think I probably could have gone a little bit heavier on the tequila itself, but I didn't. I'll, I'll explain what I did. I'll explain what I did. Hear me out. Okay. Ounce and a half of Aja Toro tequila, which is a tequila sourced by one of our patrons. So Sharkbait, thank you very much. I really, really like it. She sent it to me from Mexico when she visited. So super cool. It's a Reposado tequila. I, I tasted it yesterday and it... It starts really, really smooth, but then there's this lingering sort of barrel finish to it that's interesting. I don't know tequila that well compared to like whiskeys, but it felt really complex and like started out really crisp and ended up barely. I just, I really liked it. So she has requested I come up with some recipes for it and I wanted to just try it in the tequila first or uh, try it in a margarita first to see how it goes. So ounce and cool. a half of tequila, ounce of Cointreau. Three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, and then a pinch of salt, shaken, served over ice with a lime wedge. Realize that you don't have enough to make a good-looking drink for a picture, so do it again, but up the tequila to two ounces. So total three and a half ounces of tequila, two ounces of Cointreau, ounce and a half of lime juice, salt, lime wedge. Pretty standard <laughs> tasting margarita. So for that reason, I think I'd go even heavier on the tequila just to try to get those flavors to come through, but it's tasty and I'm going to enjoy drinking it for the rest of the show. By the rest of the show, I mean, probably not that long because Jesus following Christ. that up, I've got Liftbridge Understanding Computers, which is Liftbridge is a local Minnesota company that's kind of one of the, one of the older to the craft scene, I'd say within Minnesota, mm -hmm. but I really like the the can art for it. It's basically the Windows blue screen of desk screen. And uh, yeah, double dry hop, double IPA. Really, really mango forward on the taste. Clean, nice New England. But that's what I've got. Throwing it to you, Crossland. What are you drinking today? I realized that I fucked up the whiskey sour a little bit, actually. I, I can't believe that I've had so many of these and I made such an egregious error. I'm having a whiskey sour, as aforementioned. We've had it many times on the show. Except for I realized that I used lime juice instead of lemon juice. 
Not the most egregious of errors, of course. The citruses are different. This is, it's not as kind of as bright as that would usually be, but it's still really good. So I guess it's like just a, yeah, it's tasty. I, of course, as mentioned previously, I worked for a coffee company for a while. I didn't actually work in a coffee shop, but I did take a, like, barista artwork class and figured out how they did that and so every time i do a sour now i'm experimenting with different stuff because i haven't done it in forever so like doing latte art effectively on the top of sours so i did a little heart today which was all that i was really going to talk about but apparently i fucked up the recipe <laughs> so <laughs> it tastes really good still not that that makes a crazy difference for those who don't know pretty straightforward generally it's three quarter ounce lemon juice a two ounces of bourbon half ounce of simple syrup and an egg white shaken dry shaken added ice to shake served without ice chilled in a glass and then topped with bitters and if you use your pick well you can and you distribute your bitters well you can draw with them it's there great yeah perfect so That's what did it. you draw i drew a heart Drew a little heart. I drew a little, it's a little lovely heart. Last week, I think during our live show, I drew a light bulb, which was fun and a little bit different. Mm-hmm. That was a little complicated, but it worked out. And uh, But I was kind of pressed for time, so I just did a heart. Well, I would try nice. to show you with the camera, but I would pour the drink all over the computer. You posted a picture of it. I saw it. Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with that, let's get into our chapter. Oh, I'm fo- fuck. I'm following that up with... <laughs> It's where I've been drinking all day. I have it. I'm drinking Lightning Strikes Thrice once again from Wilmington Brewing Company. That's special edition. One of the special editions that I think I might have even had last week on the show. If I didn't do the Tropical Tropical. I forget which one I did. I did one or the other. I can't remember. Yeah. I think I actually technically did both because I got a beer in the back half because needed something to round out the show. But. That sounds right. We don't don't talk about those back half beers. Uh, BHBs, as we call them. Uh, So with that, (laughs) let's get into our chapters. (laughs) Sometimes I'll announce them. Uh, Yeah, sometimes we announce them when they're really good. Tropical Tropical was really good, but it felt like it would be interrupting the flow too much. Okay, cool. So with that, chapter 13. We have a a number of chapters to cover this week, so this should be... Should be good and exciting. So we start off with kind of Orser's obstinance, and I think that gives us a window into him in his own way. He appears to not like the contract or, or the idea of being in a contract underneath a person, in this case, Finn, as it stands. And he really doesn't like having to try to interpret or even he doesn't even try to interpret Vin's meaning of things versus being told something to do explicitly. And it's not until like Vin starts finally hacking away at him to get an understanding of what Conjurer are capable of and their contract that we even kind of see any sort of character moments that aren't just him being a a dodgy asshole. (laughs) But we also get some more rules here. It's kind of, it's kind of an interesting little segment and Orsur is obviously a big recurring character over the section. What would you make of that? What'd you make of our boy? It was kind of a strange, our good boy. It's kind of a strange disposition to try to break down. He seems like he kind of appreciates that she isn't, oppressive as a master but still kind of resents the fact that there's a contract in general is annoyed by how she's not commanding it's what i felt was really really cool was the comparison that can be made between vin and orsur and ellen and tindwell later mm-hmm. where one is sort of pushing for more conviction but doesn't quite I don't know. Fall for it, I guess. Like when they when they finally are more more. That's a really great. Com- yeah, that's, that they is push back against it. 
that's a really great comparison. So speaking a little bit more to what you're saying, Tindwill is teaching Ellen to be more commanding through like directly addressing when he should be more commanding and, you know, actively pushing back kind of like you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then Orsur is being dodgy and saying, well, you didn't tell me to do that kind of like a petulant child and being like, I'll listen if you tell me, but I'm not going to do it otherwise. Uh, and it's mentioned that he almost smiles or he seems satisfied when she finally does command him to do something. Yeah. So maybe it gives him some sort of like perverted joy when he has to follow the contract. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Contra are weird. Maybe they're strange sexual deviants for being told what to do. We're starting off this episode strong. (laughs) (laughs) Between BHBs and sexual deviancy of a dog. A dog ghost man. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Just a submissive dog. Yes, a submissive dog. (laughs) Boss me around Lady Vin. Do it. I want it. No, no. I need to cut that. Maybe not. <laughs> oh, no. I just can't help but imagine more like <laughs> commands in the bedroom. All right, I'm done. <laughs> we need to. Don't fuck dogs. Don't. Yeah, don't fuck dogs. Even if they're. <laughs> this is the first thing we have to talk about. Oh, no. <laughs> this is an episode, Crossland. Already. Yeah, it's true. Through <laughs> through conversation, Orser and Vin hew down our list of possible murder suspects as well, removing Breeze as he hadn't yet returned, and Ellen from the list of folks impersonated by the Chondra. Any are there any others that really strike you as more or less likely? And what do you think of Vin's tactic based on our stores stating that the Chondra can't be can't use or be affected by Alamancy? I think it's going to make for some really cool sleuthing and really kind of Vin having to be pretty crafty in how to trick people into using Alamancy around mm-hmm. her without like tipping off the entire crew that like there's an imposter in the midst. Though Ham already knows now, so things are fucked. But I'm imagining murder mystery shit is going to be fun. Like Clue. Alamantic Clue. It is kind of... I, I also... I, I think it of it very akin to Clue. Like, okay, where we we have we found our body. We've got our Mister Gray dead. <laughs> well, we don't really know that it's a Mister Gray, do we? But we do know that there are bones on the ground, at least a bonus set. And now we have to kind of work our way backwards and figure out which Chandra, or not which Chandra, rather, but who is impersonating who here. Breeze is the only person that's for sure clear. Correct. Vin also clears Ellen, but she's not, she's convincing herself that he's clear. Yes. Kind of, especially based on Orsor's definition. Yeah. She, she is, I think you're technically correct. She is choosing not to explore that possibility. Yeah. Because she's convinced that she would recognize it if he wasn't, Mm -hmm. but there was technically a window where it could have happened. Yes. Yeah. It, it definitely, it's a, it's off her table, but it might be on our table. It's definitely on mine. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I don't trust him. I mean, Breeze is probably still on your table, right? Even though he's been exonerated. He was exonerated too cleanly. The prospect of I still of think it Breeze, could be Vin. Even though we're living in her perspective? Yes. That would be pretty wild. So, 
we've, we've been speculating since the first book about the creature that Elendi saw and stabbed and that stabbed one of his friends when they were kind of making their way up to the Well of Ascension. Here we kind of see a manifestation of something wispy willowing around in the mists, sort of composed half there. What do you make of this thing and the cognitive effect it seems to have on Vin? I'm not, I'm still not sure what to make of it. There's it's steeped in mystery and I think for good reason. But last book we had Condra referred to as the cousins of Mistwraiths or I, this book calls them cousins of Mistwraiths. Last book called them like grown up Mistwraiths. So they're obviously connected and I think now we have clarifications that they're not the same type of and like it's not like the evolution of a Mistwraith is Condra. So I think it's something similar in the same vein, kind of a mist, like a Chandra adjacent mist wraith adjacent entity of some sort, or this is actually the grown up version of a mist wraith that we were talking about in the first book, not Chandra, hmm. but whatever this thing is kind of taking on all of the, all of the bodies that it's been consuming somehow. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think the other bit that like chokes me up with this section is when it grabs her and she feels that sensation that goes like from the side of her head, from like her ear almost into her mind. Right. Yeah. And like kind of splits from like surface to to deep. Did you have any thoughts like that's that's where this breaks from like a, a normal chondra for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's something I was going to say psychotic, not psychotic, but psionic sure yeah is that the right term like something mind related i feel like psionic is the right term but um, being able to sort of touch her mind to a certain extent there is the the imagery from the first book of the sort of what shadowy dagger that stabbed alendi alendi's buddy yeah 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 i wonder if that that's what it looked like from an outsider looking at vin at that point i'd be curious hmm what the outside perspective of what that was was Mm -hmm. okay yeah all right yeah i this is this is like a very very wild kind of thing here like it's as you said this is just a bunch of speculation that kind of I'm forcing you into this week because that is kind of the nature. That is kind of the nature of this section is it poses a fuck ton of questions. That's kind of, that's kind of pretty much all we live in this week. So from there, we switched to Ellen talking about still using the old currency boxings. And if anyone knows, and if anyone knows anything about you and I, they know that we love to talk about our fallen empires and their currencies. The fact that the society is still using boxings, of course, after only a year seems super reasonable compared to, oh, I don't know, say a galaxy far. Well, yeah, far, far away from here. But it was this galaxy. Yeah. This is not what? Huh? Oh, far, far away from. Yes. The Cosmere. What yes, we're the inhabiting. Yes, 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 yes. Yep. I think what makes even more sense with this is the fact that they're made out of precious metals. So they, that's what gives them value as far as I can tell, because they're gold or are there, are there any other denominations? Like, are there silver or bronze? I don't think they're entirely gold gold or were they actually gold? They're gold boxings. I know that's 
how they've been referred to before, but I think other smaller denominations like clips, clips, I think are copper. And those are the smallest denominations. Copper clips, imperial bo- uh, full boxing is a gold coin. Yes. So they're copper clips and imperial boxings are gold. Yeah. So the fact that they're made out of precious metal is what gives them value. Mm-hmm. So I could see them slowly collecting, reminting, and redistributing all of the coins in the same denomination, but they don't have to like invalidate them. That's just going to cause way more problems than what they're equipped to handle right now. So just doing it slowly over time, as they get money in, they can remint it or like just repress it and send them back out, but still accept both because this is like empire spanning. They don't have the resources to collect and redistribute gold coins right now. Yeah, right. Definitely. It's it's not a worthwhile thing to do, even though he's still obviously he's still grappling with this idea of like, well, we threw away the old regime. It's so much harder to get rid of in every way, shape and form. And the currency is just one example. Like they still have to use the fucking coins of the oppressor. Right. And there's still so many of the scars we see through says its perspective are upset that the Lord ruler is gone because he was, you know, their God. And so there are all of these different vestiges of like small little things that still have to be overcome before mm-hmm. the final empire can truly be unseated. And on top of that, we've got armies at the gates. <laughs> there's that. Yeah. That's a problem. There, there is that. And that's that's a big problem that the crew has to deal with, right? The crew spent some time reflecting on what they should do, and, and you can sorely kind of feel Kelsier's presence missing from the party here. This is where Ellen gets to step in after their kind of dejected options about how they should give up the city or who they should give it up to, how they should surrender. Ellen offers a better solution, starving out their enemies as long as possible, playing political ping pong between the two of them to give the, to give the city of Luthadel a fighting chance on their own. Yeah, there was the comments about basically every time somebody seems to be the clear winner switching sides. That seems like a fun thing to see from our perspective is how they could manipulate the the interactions of the other two armies, because I think they could do a really good job of it as long as Ellen doesn't fuck it up. So I'm excited to see that. But there is an argument made here from Ellen that I had basically completely overlooked. And I think a lot of the characters did as well. But fighting to stay in power here more or less saves the lives of all the ska that would be thrown back into slavery once another, like once another king comes to power. So that alone is a point that can motivate the crew and would probably motivate the, the army and the populace at large to fight for Elland. Yeah, yeah, he could definitely be pulling on those strings, right, to to really kind of puppet them out. Obviously, the army is going to be mostly probably composed of noblemen or half or, you know, other other forms of conscripted soldiers of whom still believe in the the final empire and their king that they're underneath. So that's definitely a harder argument. But you I would agree with you. I think that he has a he has a rallying cry that the rest of the crew is really overlooking, which was the rallying cry that truly overthrew the Lord Ruler's systems in the city of Luthadel. Which was the ska, right? Don't don't overlook your best resource, which is the people. Right. And I think he he kind of find he points that out and says we should be playing into that as much as possible. And that's interesting, especially considering the fact that literally everyone else in the room is a, a ska for the most part. Yeah. I felt like there was sort of a shift in demeanor once that was said. 
It kind of invigorated, I don't know, some gears. So speaking of the the kind of demeanor of the crew, I, I think that we're given this mystery, right, that we feel like we have to solve. Was there any component here inside of this section that made you believe that one of the crew members that we talked to could be the imposter at the moment? Any like undue influence or strange opinions that you didn't think would come from them came from them? Any anything that you pulled out of that? I didn't get any strange opinions. What I would have expected was something a little bit more substantial from Ham. We don't really get any sort of philosophical questioning that we would expect Mm. from him, especially in sort of a high level conversation like this about right and wrong and fighting for armies and fighting against armies and fighting for Ska and like all of this political stuff that's going on. I would have expected something from Ham and we don't, we, we get a couple really plain like pieces of conversation from him that don't really amount to anything. So that's, yeah, that's the only thing I could really think of. Sure. Um, but otherwise I mean, it's known. It yeah. It's, it's a known entity that conjure are good actors. So it's not insane to, you know, believe that they could be, could be playing fake at this point. From a meta perspective, I could entirely believe that Branderson wrote this scene before he decided who was taken over. Interesting. Like, okay. I could believe that he just decided they're all good enough actors. I'm not going to decide yet. And I'm going to write them as if they're all still here. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But I don't know. I'm sure I'm going to eat my words when we find out and there are hints everywhere that I didn't catch. So <laughs> man, that's like everything in this story. So I don't blame you. <laughs> it's just like the, it's the little things. It's always just all the little things, but then we get our introduction to Tintwill. I mean, I guess we don't technically, I don't think we get her name or anything like that, but a, we do in just a second when we turn the page into the next chapter. So I'm just going to mention it now, but we get our introduction to Tintwill, the terrorist woman from last week who was stalking Ellen through the meeting. I find it very, I find her very interesting and a lot more to say in the next chapter, but yeah. What, what do you think yeah. of kind of the introduction here? I think the strangest thing in this section about her is that the guards very explicitly say they have no idea how she got through their defenses. And then that's just kind of brushed aside and never mentioned again, but she got in sneakily sneaky. Like, I, I, I think that's some of, I think that's because of some of what we experience in the next chapter, which is that she is a ferrochemist. And so she yeah. likely was able to sneak by. Yeah, that's fair. In some, some capacity. She stored up all her sneak. Yes, she stored up all of her sneak in that weird metal <laughs> in potassium. That's what potassium does is it's sneaky. Bananas are sneak fruit. It's <laughs> sneak fruits. The bananas, the sneakiest fruit that you've ever done had. <laughs> oh, bananas. The power of bananas. All right. <laughs> We're delightfully silly tonight, PJ. <laughs> it's going. I'm okay with it. Well, with that, we have chapter 14, and this is an interesting logbook section I'll start off with here. Uh, I can't believe I fucking said interesting again. You've said it a bunch of times. I have been very careful about it, and I know that I've said it a bunch of times, and I've been thinking about it. And even when I was writing notes in this, every time I wrote interesting, I replaced it with fascinating or rewrote the entire sentence every time. (laughs) So there are a lot that slipped through. I'm telling you. In the notes here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know about that. Control F, interesting, four. 
Okay, that's not that many considering how many questions. Okay, there are. three. One of them is me. Is are any of them in the bottom in the in the fucking? All of them are um, kind of in the middle. Page four. They aren't in six. predictions. Okay, I thought some might be in PJ's predictions. Damn. Fuck. I was hoping they were from previous weeks. All right. Well, that's fine. <laughs> four isn't so bad. Three isn't so bad comparatively. It just goes to show how easy it is to get trapped in, you know, a, in a conversation gambit where you keep repeating your words over and over and over again. I don't think you used that word correctly. I definitely didn't. <laughs> it's even more difficult when this book is very interesting. Like, mm-hmm. there are a whole lot of threads that are coming together and, like, diverging. And it is a genuinely interesting story top to bottom so yeah it's full of intrigue which is interesting like it it is what word do you want me to use folks folks in the comments let us know what word you want me to say instead you're still gonna use interesting i know you yeah i'm I'm gonna try so hard interesting you've overused the term interesting since i've known you and not in a bad way but like that's always been a word that i've associated with you yeah it's a way of acknowledging but not like saying if you're right or wrong <laughs> in this way That's of just neutralizing point. whatever you just said <laughs> like an acid base reaction just making it basic making it neutral rather ph neutral anyway our making it here. seven making it seven oh, sevens all the way down pj uh <laughs> fucking shit okay this logbook and yet any <laughs> And yet, any who know me will realize that there is no chance I would give up so easily. Once I find something to investigate, I become dogged in my pursuit. And, or dogged, which, whichever. It's one of those weird ones where it's like, is it dogged? Mm, I think I've heard it as dogged, but I... It it probably should be dogged, but it's it's one of those stupid old English words that, like, isn't written correctly to the way that it's pronounced. I think it's doggied. We're not going back to the BDSM dog jokes, PJ. We've left those in the past. But in truth, this little passage from Quan reminds me of Sazed. This reminds me of Sazed. This feels like almost the keeper mentality for the most part. And I know that obviously he's not defined. Quan isn't defined as a keeper, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely <clears throat> reminds me of Sazed as well. That's a really good call. I don't know. that. <laughs> I wonder if... I wonder if that's just a trait of that culture and those people, and that became a driving trait of the keepers. Interesting. Fucking shit. Fuck me. (laughs) Fuck, fuck, fuck. Shit. Yeah. It does feel like it's a trait of the terrorist people. I do agree with you. And it feels like something that their society has idolized for a long time, Mm. especially because we know that even back then, the ferrochemists exist. We know that ferrochemists exist for sure. So we can imagine that the preservation of knowledge was still important, although not nearly as dire. And so you can imagine the keeper people using that sort of ability to their advantage in a bunch of different Mm -hmm. ways. Yeah. Yeah. So we we go back to Tindwell. And again, this is our introduction. And she's a fairly brash character. We learn just a smidge later that she's a keeper, a ferrochemist as well. But she's a keeper specifically of biographies. And as such, knows quite a bit about leaders and behavior. It makes her a near perfect mentor for Ellen during this tumultuous time. I I have to say, it feels weird to just jump into this interaction. Because I don't really want to go along with Ellen here and just assume that it's okay that she's here. And she's like breaking out of her bindings and giving commands to the king and like nobody's ever met her before she 
vaguely says something about having heard about him from Sazed. Sure. Okay. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything as far as her validity as like any, like, I don't understand why the king of a new country is trusting somebody like this so easily, so readily, but let's just go along with it and say it's fine. She's kind of a perfect match for him. You know, <laughs> she's kind of exactly what he needs, which almost too perfect, almost giving me, I don't know, alarm bells are ringing, giving you ulterior motive vibes. Yeah, exactly. But even Ellen is finding himself feel more regal after interacting with her and like really taking her advice to heart pretty quickly. And, and to that point, like talking about her advice, I think it's important to kind of address her assertions on Ellen as a character. And, you know, with that in mind, what do you see her role in the story being going forward? Right. Like, where, where do you see her fitting in most logically? I mean, I think there's definitely ulterior motives. Like, it, it feels so it feels too perfect. But I think she's pretty spot on regarding Ellen's character, like. He hasn't acted like a king and he hasn't felt like a king. And for that reason, he's being taken advantage of during talks. He, he needs to both act like a king and feel like a king in order to actually get shit done. And this is, like I said, really, really quickly changing his sort of self image in a good way, in, in sort of a regal way. And I think she's going to be very important to the story as far as sparking his growth arc in that sense and unifying the leadership under Elland. But like I said, there's something more there. I don't know if it's nefarious necessarily, but I don't think it's entirely selfless. Yeah. And she does have like, she has flashes of kindness, you know, or like of maybe not kindness that might not be the right, right word but she does respect ellen when he demands respect which is interesting and it's not as though she's she's not quite a catholic teacher slapping your knuckles with a ruler right she's mm-hmm. more akin to hmm, i can't think of a good good equivalent metaphor but she's not she's not punishing necessarily or or brutal in that way but she is brash and quick and Shocking. I could which is good for Ellen. Puts him on his toes. Yeah, that's true. Given given how this all jumps in, I could see this being almost a conspiracy of Sazed and Breeze. Like recognizing that like this guy isn't isn't what we need him to be. Let's find somebody who can get him there. Like Breeze seems like the kind of person that would recognize that and know what to do. And Sazed would have the connections to her. In the first place, I, I think that's a great call and that it there is that potential for that conspiracy. At the very least, we know that Sazed was at least kind of involved, right? Like mm-hmm. we know that he was at least surface level involved with this entire interaction. So, right. That's at the very least a notch of goodness for it. Yeah. And I guess we'll learn really soon if when when Sazed arrives, which, you know, appears to be imminent at the end of his chapter this week, what that entails. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So after Tindwell's departure, Vin enters the room and has a conversation about the crew and Ellen's plan. They share their insecurities about the future and Vin spends the time to reassure him that it's a good plan, but 
Ellen has this moment of deep insecurity where he retorts that he isn't Kelsier and that that his rebuttal is feels like a very real character moment for him. And he feels very genuine in that moment. I do want to make note. Vin came in before Tindwell's departure because they confront each other. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, I'm basically trying so, to remove yeah, Tindwell from but the picture going a forward. Bit, but yes. Yeah. yeah. So regarding the fact that he's not Kelsier is something that that's going to be echoing for a while. I think that's going to be one of his big, one of his obstacles to overcome over time that Kelsier's shadow is lingering in so many ways. The entire first part of the book is the heir to the heir of the survivor. And we we've talked over the last couple episodes of just what that means and how many different ways that can be interpreted. So Kelsier's influence is everywhere. And just by his nature of his station, he's going to be compared to Kelsier constantly. So if, if not by other people by himself, and he's going to have to get over that, but it's going to be, it's going to be an uphill battle, which will feel good to overcome eventually. Hopefully. Yeah. I think it will feel good for him to overcome. It does give us this, gives us an objective for Ellen, right? It gives us a character arc. It sets a goal, which mm-hmm. is to get over. And I think it does for Vin too in her own right, because her, she's obviously dealing with some of these insecurities in the form of facing off against other Mistborn of protecting Ellen and sort of her insecurities and failing there. And it gives our, our at least two heirs of the survivor, a path to, potentially you know overcome that that's hanging over their head so yeah we get a lot of questions from vin relating to the religion that ellen was raised on with was rather raised with at the end of this chapter questions about the deepness and vin trying to connect it with what she understands about the hero of ages uh, in combination from or rather not in combination, but from the previous logbook, the old logbook that Alendi had left. It's a great section to remind us of the world building we've experienced through the story so far, meaning the previous book. And a smart move, again, when you've got yearly publishing, you're not the only book on the shelf and you need to keep people, you know, like up to date with information to keep them involved in the story. For us, this can maybe seem a little bit tedious, but I think it's important just for a little nudge. I don't know how much you remember week to week, but, you know, uh, what do you make of? What do you make of Ellen's knowledge on these subjects and the education the nobles have received? Ellen's upbringing strikes me as something that included private tutors. Sure. Not like public education. So it seems like he was probably taught basically whatever Lord Straff wanted him to be be taught. And Lord Straff, maybe not the most religious person in the world, so probably didn't focus on religion in their studies. So I think it, sure, it's open to them. It's a possibility for them to study religion, but I don't think they, I don't think there's any, anywhere it makes sense for him to have been taught it anyway. So I think it makes sense that he doesn't really know a whole lot about it. Yeah. I I think I think I agree with you for the most part. We had spent a lot of time in the last book talking about education and what they're exposed to. And this here shows that not everything uh, penetrates as deeply as we'd assume, which is to Vin's detriment, ultimately, and sort of her kind right. of arguments and thought processes on these things. So, 
you know, despite the perspective that, oh, well, they know everything about that because it's their religion. It's like, well, no, it sounds kind of like Ellen was an Easter Christmas Christian, not a, not a die hard, hard Lord Ruler boy. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like funny, funny equivalent holidays. All I can think of is Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah, because i think that's it's, today it's literally today <laughs> while we're recording catholics. this folks it is literally ash wednesday today for for catholics and yeah with that we move into chapter 15 it's funny how like sometimes these sections could be really long but you know they're summarized well and, and we get a lot of character moments and that's kind of the the thing here so while we may not be investigating some of these as deep as others keep in mind we're trying to hit it all do it at yeah. a reasonable pace We've got so many more fucking books to read after this Kickstarter thing, people. Like, I had a plan, I had a game plan, and now my dreams have been summarily changed. I don't, I don't know what we're gonna do. I don't know how to react to this. We're going to quit our jobs, do this full time, do like a book a week. I mean, you know, does that sound so bad? And then we'll need editors because all of our time will be doing this not getting the post-production done well if we only have to post-produce one a week we would have content forever oh i'm saying we do an episode every day oh fuck yeah yeah that'd be a lot okay with that chapter 15 <laughs> we might do them as short pours folks i don't know i'm trying to think of a plan for what to do with the book of sanderson or the year of sanderson books i think it'd be fun because he even pitched them as a like quarterly book club which just makes it makes it feel like it makes so much sense to do as like quarterly short pours or something like that so they're also all being simultaneously released in ebook hardcover and audiobook which is sweet so perfect yeah right Anyway, we'll that, do something with it. I'm sure we'll explore. We got to figure it out. We have a year technically. <laughs> All right. Going into chapter 15, we've got our logbook section here. I think this is one of the more interesting ones of the week uh, because I think it talks about something really big. So we'll fucking interesting. I had determined that Alendi was the hero of ages and I intend. I had determined that Alendi was the hero of ages and I intended to prove it. I should have bowed before the will of others. I shouldn't have insisted on traveling with Alendi to witness his journeys. It was inevitable that Alendi himself would find out what I believed him to be. So I I find this a, a really provocative read, right? Because <laughs> I've never felt like a force. You didn't see his face. I saw his face when he said that. He's like, he's just searching for another term to use. (laughs) It was, it was very. It is a very uh, provocative section, I think, here because it it implies that Alendi didn't know necessarily about the prophecy right away, or maybe he knew, but he didn't know exactly why Quan was following him around. There's some air of secrecy between Alendi and Quan, right? Because originally it was supposed to be the other way, as we learn at the end of this week. Like, Alendi was his assistant, and then it ended up reversing. Yeah. I'm not quite sure I buy it. It That read to me more like backwards justification for like of putting Alendi up as the hero of ages and feeling guilty about that. And trying to say, like, no, I didn't intend for that to happen at all. Like, I I didn't want it to get this far. It It felt like he's backtracking on his previous actions and trying to like backwards justify. I don't know. Yeah, there there is some of that throughout these sections. I, I don't disagree with that as a general premise, but I do feel like 
some of this is him going back and reflecting and being like, okay, I know that I made an error. I know that I made a mistake. Here's where I partially went wrong. Here's where here's where I take the blame as opposed to blaming Alendi. It's my fault. And so he's I think he's owning it. I think he's mostly owning the mistake. Doesn't he say he didn't intend for Alendi to find out? Are you saying this week? In this in this chapter. This logbook. Doesn't it say something along the lines of I didn't I didn't think he'd find out or I, I didn't like it was accidental that Alendi found well, out that he thought he was so. Be the, so here's what he says: like, It was inevitable just... that Alendi himself would find out what I believed him to be. So it's so the full the full thing again. I determined that Alendi was the hero of ages, and I intended to prove it. I should have bowed before the will of others. I shouldn't have insisted on traveling with Alendi to witness his journeys. It was inevitable that Alendi himself would find out what I believed him to be. That's taking all the blame off of him. That's that's him saying like he was going to find out just by being around instead of like I let him know this is what I thought of him, which is, I think, more probably accurate to what happened. Interesting. And I mean that genuinely. You're suggesting that no matter what you're you're suggesting that no matter what Alendi was going to inevitably believe that he was the hero of ages. I'm saying that Quan is trying to say that. He didn't have a hand in telling Elendi that he was the hero of ages and that it was just kind of by happenstance. When in reality, I feel like he was more cavalier about it. Maybe not explicitly saying you're the hero of ages, but kind of pushing him into it. I think that's an that is a diverging perspective that we have between the uh, logbooks, right? Because Elendi yeah. feels like he was kind of pushed into it and Quan feels like he was going to find out regardless. But Quan also is referred to in the previous logbook as a world bringer, right? As the people who is one of the people who will witness the ascension of the hero of ages. Mm-hmm. And so that also feels like it. He's, he's interpreting Quan following around as a push and that eventually people would have followed him around because he's remarkable. And so maybe blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. There's, I know my word salad on all this is maybe a little bit like hard to follow. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Yes, I do understand what you're saying. Like, I'm just not 100% certain that I agree with yeah. it entirely. But I do understand the perspective of Quan effectively diffusing blame from himself. Yeah, yeah, I do I do understand what you're saying there. I think that there may be some attempt to absolve himself of that, but I don't think that's the singular thing here, hmm. if that makes sense. We go from the logbook entry that we have at the top of this chapter to another Sazed chapter, of which are really kind of fun. I don't know about you, but I love the Sazed chapters. They feel very different than the other chapters. They, you know, between Sazed's perspective in general and kind of everything else going on, it's a it's a good refresh, a good kind of repacing inside of the story. So I'm really excited by the by this one and the prospects here in Sanderson really plays with other tools in the toolkit of a writer. You know, if we think about a tool belt, he's he's whipping out the horror screwdriver in my hand or in my brain, employing some great horror techniques to kind of drive this the story home in a different direction. But before we get to that, we get Sazed and more Coppermind explanations while he's waiting for Marsh heading towards Luthadel with the rubbing of the metal from the conventicle of Saren. Yeah. You just mentioned right at the beginning, you said something along the lines of like, this felt like it was written a little bit different. 
Yeah, from, yeah. From I feel Seiza's like Seiza's perspective. Seiza chapters are generally written different, but yeah, yeah. I think what highlights that the best for me is the waiting for Marsh sequence. Like that felt so out of out of style for how Sanderson's written so far, but to its credit, perfectly fits the way I would imagine Seiza thinking. Kind mm-hmm. of just very matter of fact, very objective based evaluate the situation objective evaluate objective evaluate and i don't know I, I i appreciated the the exchange of like his daily chores marsh didn't show up yeah and know. still marsh did not come it, it's this nice refrain that has i think referring to it as a refrain actually makes a lot a lot of sense that provides a tonal reset in a lot of ways to what's going on between uh, Martian Sazed and in general feels like it breaks pace with a lot of Sanderson's writing. And I agree with you. I think that Sanderson definitely gets into, I don't want to call it the motions, but a lot of his structure can be very samey, which isn't problematic. He's trying to explain a story, right? And we break that up typically with like the action scenes more than anything else. We break that up with moments like this as well. And it's refreshing to to have mm-hmm. those kind of differences in prose to reset a little bit yeah and the i mean we we get not only a reset but a very different setting here with that the scene that says stumbles upon on his path to luthadel is a shocking one one of a quiet abandoned village where rot and decay overwhelms the senses one with untended livestock and fields urbani urbini urbani 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 is a spooky town it's a spooky town urbine urbine i think is what i would say but I don't remember what it said in the audiobook. Yeah. It is a spooky town. I mean, I think he mentions that it's well kept. Like it, it looks it's a nice looking little village. But when we get to the smell, what I really appreciated is the tin mechanic for ferrochemists being able to start storing smell so you don't have to smell anything. It's like it's a it's a total win-win. <laughs> It's fairly genius that Farrakimi is secretly two abilities at the same time. Yeah. Kind of. Not all the time. Not all the time. But like but. like we were talking about last week with storing weight, right? And then being able to like make yourself heavier light. That's useful in two different situations. Tin, for instance, here with the sense of smell, we get the idea that you can store smell and you don't have to experience it right now, but you can experience it in mass at a later time. And so it's almost like each of these powers are a two-sided coin that you get to make a decision on and how you mm-hmm. use them. I guess, what are the exceptions to that? There's all all the different senses. All the senses are all tin, correct? Mm-hmm. And they work the same way, but they can be stored separately. So those are all individual powers to a certain extent, right? Like sight yeah. is one and mm-hmm. hearing is one and smell Yep. There's one taste, maybe. Imagine supersonic taste. Super taste. Super taste. Or storing taste while you're forced to eat something gross. Like blazing challenge with like super taste. <laughs> or with, <laughs> like with, uh, mustard or tuna salad sandwiches. <laughs> exactly. So that's I hadn't thought about that, but he probably has to have separate tin bands specifically for each different sense because i don't think you can store them all in the same one can you that's a good clarification that i'm not sure on i feel like it is technically the same although 
he I think he does say something like he he puts on a tin ring. I think he puts mm-hmm. on a ring that's he calls like a scent ring. Wait, or something don't they like have that. to pierce him? No, Farrakimi does not pierce. I thought you can't pull on metals that pierce. Right. He had like earrings and stuff, and I thought the Lord Ruler had like his his bands were like embedded in his arms and stuff. The two bands in question were embedded in his arms. Yeah. I was under the impression that all of the ones that actually mattered had to be piercing the skin. So that completely changes everything for the way that I think about how this works now. Interesting. Because Interesting. Like, even the bracers, I imagine them like digging into his skin and like piercing his skin. Yeah, yeah, because he pulls them on and off. He does. He like unclasps and reclasps them. But he does I pull out his earrings. Um, yeah. I don't know why I'm a mat. Anyway, that's now I get to think about that differently, which is good. But yeah, win-win for not having to smell that shit going forward to the entirely corpse-filled city. Town, really. Village. I'm double-checking the Farrakhemi question here. Sorry. There's so many things here and I cannot read this out loud because there are I things know. to come. I'd love to be able to just Google, how does Farrakhemi and Mistborn work? Definitely can't. <laughs> yeah. No, that will that will break you. That makes sense. I... A piercing is used... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A piercing can be used as a ferrochemical fair, fair metal mind. So, yes. Uh, but to answer it, doesn't, the, it doesn't have to pierce the skin, though. It does not have to pierce, yes. That's what I, I, that's thought, what I was uh, understanding. Okay. I thought okay. your question was whether or not a piercing could be used as a... Oh, no. Got I it. Knew that, okay. I knew that yeah, was yeah. the case, because it says it swallowed some. Yeah, and Vin Zering. I'm just kidding. And Vin Zier- no, I'm not kidding. That's absolutely <laughs> just, the case. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> You'd think she would notice it by now, though, but nope. Nope, she's yep. just, it's always been there. She's just never paid attention to it because it's her mom. Because <laughs> it's her mom. PJ is pouting. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of, kind of pouting. I'm just kidding. But all these, all these folks are dead, right? And, and that's, that is in and of itself a giant question mark that is placed over top of this town. All of this yeah. death and destruction is caused by the mist, as it's claimed by the man inside the house that we see of whom is kind, is a cannibal and really this is a very disrupting scene this is something that you would think would be in a stephen king novel this is something that feels like it belongs in dark tower not something <laughs> that belongs strictly in mistborn if that makes sense he's explicitly not a cannibal right no he is he just he's hiding the bones of the people that he's eating the the meat off of i recommend rereading this because this was one of the most confusing scenes to me I, when i listened to it i read it a and few i times. went back yeah so he is he is just so disconnected from what he's doing and he's shouting that he's he's not like them he didn't do the things but he is he's eating their flesh he he points at the bones and said they ate the food i didn't eat the food Right. He's blaming the dead people for eating themselves when in reality he okay. ate them I didn't, when they I, died. That I didn't understand that. He didn't he didn't the kill him. That... Yeah. Let me see if I can yeah. find it. Okay. Okay, just to start here. The hovel like most was only a single chamber. It was filled with bodies, mostly wrapped in thin blankets, some sat with bags. Their backs pressed up against the wall, rotting heads hanging limply from their necks. They had gaunt, nearly fleshless bodies with withered limbs and protruding ribs. Haunted, unseeing eyes sat in their desiccated faces. These people had died from starvation and dehydration. Right, so most everyone is dead from that. 
Flies buzzed about in swarms, covering faces and several of the buildings. He found gnawed human bones at the center of the room. Stumbled out of the final hovel, breathing deeply through his mouth. I think he hears something and then turns around. He spuns, drawing auditory... Okay, he spun, drawing auditory power from his hearing tin mind. Important. He does have a separate tin mind for stuff, which is why I read that. Mm-hmm. And the sound was there, breathing sound, different movement. I'm a friend. Decent frenzied. He scrambled over corpses, moving to the back of the room. He huddled down, staring at Sazed. There is no food. We ate it all, except the food. Okay, so the man shook his head. There is no food, he whispered. We ate it all, except dot, 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 the food. His eyes darted towards the center of the room, towards the bones Sazed had noticed earlier, uncooked, not on, placed in a pile beneath a ragged cloth, as if to hide them. So it's implied that he's eating. But people. right after that, he says, I didn't eat the food. He goes, I didn't eat the food. But he's like whispering it in shame. The whole thing oh, is okay, like a shameful okay, okay. thing. So that's that's really the he's okay. He's hiding that as a, you know. Yeah, that makes more sense. I was thinking yep. it was, I don't know. He was horrified by having witnessed his fellow villagers eating each other. But that yes. ma- it makes more sense him like being racked with guilt after resorting to cannibalism. And that's why it's covered with a cloth, right? And why like Yeah, yeah that makes he more almost, sense. I think later he like scrambles back over to it and is like looking for something to gnaw on. It's just oh man. It's so it's so awful. And it's truly like like I've said a couple of times, it's a break from a lot of the other writing and this is a very different kind of um brutal scene versus a lot of the other things that we've seen we've seen like death and destruction of course but this is desiccated yeah. bodies this is a lot it's a definitely a lot do you have any suspicions of what's going on with the mist as it's described by this man like he says that the mist made gel one of the man's um shaken seas uncontrollably some of them got up some of them didn't many others were able to walk away unaffected you know there's kind of this giant question mark of what exactly happened why do some live why do some die what do you think slash what did you get from this in general like i mean the people inside mm-hmm. what i got from it was that they were so fearful of the mist that they Having seen it stay out for multiple days on end, they decided to just stay in and starve to death inside without wanting to face it. Right. So there's that. As far as people actually being affected by it and not affected by it, I'm thinking it has something to do with trace amounts, even trace amounts of like terrace blood being uh, a factor Like, bloodline in general, I think, is a factor in who is affected and who's not. I don't know what way. I don't know if terrorists would be more affected or less affected or... I don't know. I'm just thinking there are a certain subset of people that are unaffected by it. Okay. I don't know. That... Because we're so so far removed. Certain people are... Yeah. Yeah. We're we're so many millennia removed from... what What has it been? Like... Not millennia. It's been about a thousand years, whatever yeah, it is. We're really close. He said, I think the Lord Ruler said something like he needed another year or two. Okay. For some reason, I thought it was like... Eight- uh, I think that the Lord Ruler mostly established the final empire after 800 years, but he had been okay. around before that. He just didn't get firm on anything because he was like, you guys can that rule yourselves. And then it was like, no, you fucking can't. <laughs> that makes more sense. So that's a lot of generations of people. That it'd yep. be pretty easy to like completely dissolve any noticeable like terrorist 
bloodline like noticeable features within the Kaleniumites within the ska. I don't know. That's my working theory right now. I'm, I'm really kind of grasping at straws though. And I think that's a reasonable theory, and I don't think that you should be grasping at more than straws for the most part, because we've been investigating the murders through Sazed's perspective, and this is the third one that I think we've technically ran into. The first one being one that technically happened off screen, second one being one that we experienced kind of from perspective, and then this being the third kind of questionable, okay, something's up with a fucking mist. So. Something's up. <laughs> something's up, man. Sazed puts this man outside, of course, forcing him out, I think is really, really, it's a, it's a really, really, what are you going to say, Crossland? What word it's are you going to say? It's a, it's a, it's kind of a controversial choice, right? <laughs> as far as, as far as the, the reason and rationale goes for Sazed, I think it makes logical sense to try to expose this man to the light. I think it's an obvious logical decision to kind of put him out there and, and push against his innate fear as much as possible by proving his fear to kind of be incorrect in the insecurity. But again, he, this man being pushed out into the light is kind of is afraid of course, of what happened to everyone else in his village and eventually runs back inside. But again, he poses the question that we've gotten from the scholar so far of why did the Lord ruler leave us? And Mm -hmm. to them, this all feels like a symptom of the Lord ruler no longer being here. Yeah. And (laughs) If there's been mist staying for days on end, I don't think they're wrong. Maybe they maybe they're right for the wrong reasons, but I think this is exactly what the Lord Ruler has been saying that like he's been staving. Cool. That said, Any- I don't think it's a controversial opinion or a controversial decision to like kick him outside. I think not bringing him outside would be dooming him to death. By starvation amongst the bone, the nibbled bones of his friends, because he's he's convinced that the mists are still out there. He doesn't even know that the mists have dissipated. So if he's deciding to go like go insane in in the room with all of his buddies, that's on him. But at least he knows now that the mists are gone. No, you're right. It's not controversial in the slightest. I just didn't want to say interesting and couldn't think of a different <laughs> word after 10 seconds. So I said fucking controversial. You're you're right. You're right. It is. It's a logical decision. It it's interesting to me. Fucking shit. That I, the that the man of faith is the one to put him out into the light. Right. And to be like, OK, we'll check this out. I'm giving you this opportunity to see something different. And then mm-hmm. the man of the old faith effectively is dodging back in because he's afraid of things that he was taught to be afraid of. There, there's a there's a semi there's a pseudo religious paradigm there to me. That's like just what? under the surface. There's also a basic moral ethical yeah. dilemma, too. Like, I get it. If Seiza didn't do it, it would be bad. I'm just saying there's an interesting religious connotation of like, hey, I exposed you to X, Y, Z. I tried to save you. And yeah. it was your choice to not take that. There's that. I think it could have been done a little bit easier from Seiza's perspective because he had to he had to use some of his pewter mind to, like, strengthen himself up to carry him outside when he could have just opened the door and left it open so he could see that the mists aren't there anymore. Very true. You want to know something else that I thought of? I, for some reason, I couldn't remember this specific moment in this chapter, and I thought that Sazed killed him. I thought that Sazed put him down. But it turns out that I was conflating that in my head with Vin putting down the talk <laughs> from last week. So, as I remembered these sections of the story, 
but yeah yeah yep that's fair because it seems like something that he could do in this situation right like it would be it would actually be a relatively humane thing to do but i don't think Sazed would ever see that as a humane no no that doesn't seem in his says it's a preserver of life you know as a keeper that kind of goes against his whole preservation doctrine so Mm. yeah with that we move into chapter 16 I didn't flip to the logbook ahead of time, ahead of time. All right. Chapter 16. Yes, he was the one who fueled the rumors after that. I could never have done what he did, convincing and persuading the world that he was indeed the hero. I don't know if he believed it, but he made others think that he must be the one. I mean, that's just kind of being charismatic, right? I mean, all right, let's be real. If you told, if you were told that you were the most incredible six, seven person on the planet. You'd probably tell other people that you were voted the most incredible six, seven person on the planet. You're like, I am the best dude. And it would gradually spread that PJ Heller is the most, because you were told it once. Right. And so you're, you're just taking that validation. Now imagine if there was a religion based that said someday a six, seven man will come and save the world. Six, seven, (laughs) you were told maybe drinks a little bit too much beer and, Used to be in really good shape because he worked out all the time and still has the eating habits as if he did, but he doesn't. And that's our hero. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's very, it's a very specific prophecy. The point being here is that this is a very, like when you're told that you're prophetic in some way, shape or form, it's a hard time moving away from the fact that you're prophetic. Like I can't, there's no fantasy character that I've ever heard for the most part being told you're the chosen one who goes like, absolutely not. I'm never telling anyone this ever again. Okay. Actually there are a couple that I can think of that go along that path, but then they are proven to be the chosen one, which is like their own hero's journey. Point being mostly also leader of armies. Like we talked about this last week, leader of armies, kind of has to have some charisma kind of has to be able to talk himself up a little bit so being mm-hmm. predisposed to that is going to make you talk a little bit more about yourself in general right right yeah i just i have such i i don't have like full-on trouble um believing any of this or or kind of conceding to any of the thoughts but i do i do think about it quite a bit i'm so. starting to trust kwan's point of view less and less as well it feels like damage control like it feels deserved or not it feels like he's doing everything he can to not be the one that made alindy out to as big of a deal as he is but it's already happened so he already knows that he's doomed the world right it's already happened but he's he's saying like it wasn't me guys like yes i brought him here but he's the one that's doing all this shit He's the one like making him out to be this big thing. It's way more than I would have been able to do. Like it's not my fault. I feel like the back part of this definitely supports your theory a little bit here as it as Quan kind of blames the what is it? The ascendancy or something like that or the fact that people know that there's going to be a hero of ages at some point and so because everyone knows that there's a hero of ages regardless of whether or not they believe in the terrorist faith, it becomes inevitable when they see someone who might become the hero of ages so it becomes mm-hmm. like a strange doctrine of sorts like a doomsday doctrine kind of so yeah yeah red car theory when you see when you buy a red car all of a sudden everything looks like a red car it's psychology like a red car what from from 
from, from motherfucker. But okay, so we've we've spent a decent amount of time talking about Quan's uh, rubbing here. But the old logbook is back in this chapter, and to use or serve as a device to explain exactly. Do you have my red stapler? Do you do you have my? It's a red car. Red? It's a red stapler. Do you, I, I do, you, like I do actually have an do office space. Like red the swing line, red swing line, line stapler. stapler, which is hysterical. But the old logbook is back, and Orser uses this as a device to explain why exactly it is, and to readers that may have forgotten the specific details, given what's been swirling around us this whole time, it's a great refresher again, and time between the books for those, of course, who've forgotten over the years. We get more speculation on what the deepness could be, given these notes, and kind of, we're trying to work out an understanding of the deepness throughout this chapter. What, what are you, what are you, what's going on in your brain hole? Deepness is so weird to me. It's so weird, man, and like metaphorical, it's, maybe, but like, maybe but, it's but probably real. not. Like, but probably not. I don't know. I know this is the whole fucking story. The whole fucking story is what is the deepness. But I will fucking want to know. <laughs> just what you I don't want to know. know? No, I oh, do want to know. Like, I really, yeah. I really want to know what this whole fucking thing is. But that's the point. <laughs> I, I mm. get that. But I'm mad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm kind of dragging you through the mud on this one. Even though this is a longer book and we are doing the exact same number of episodes. So, like, I'm trying my damnedest to mm-hmm. not actually we're technically doing one more episode i'm trying my damnedest are we no we're not it's the same number i'm trying my damnedest to not drag you through the mud like and make you you know wait two more weeks to space it out like we normally would so mm-hmm. i i'm doing my best pj no. i'm trying real hard it's this weird it's this weird thing that i feel like we talk about every several episodes or so but you've completed your goal in getting me to read more but now I can't because <laughs> everything that I want to read are things that we're going to read for the show. That's fair. I have pitched like four or five big series. Although we, we are doing uh, short poor pitch. We are doing Gideon the Ninth, which is really going to be a lot of fun. Again, mm-hmm. lesbian space, lesbian space necromancers for anyone at home who's interested. There's your there's your elevator pitch. That's a good um, that's a good elevator pitch right there. It's a, it's a great elevator pitch. And so we're going to be talking about that relatively soon. So any, we are, any, you'll get to read other things. Any combination of two of those three. Great story. Lesbian space, space necromancers, lesbian necromancers, all of them. <laughs> great story. All of them, all of them. Good. All three. Fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very fun. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess win for me. So there's there's lots of speculation while studying through the documents as well, which is strange for Vin for sure, because she, you know, was not used to studying documents. This isn't her bag. She spends some of the time speculating about Kelsey's real place in this whole mess and whether or not based on the text, did he mess things up? Do you think he potentially fucked everything up? What, what do you make of Kelsey's impact? In general, I don't think Kelsier fucked everything up. Other than, like, sort of the overarching sense that Kelsier was the motivation for taking out the Lord Ruler, and the Lord Ruler was actually holding a great evil back. Like, that doesn't make it entirely Kelsier's fault, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't think Kelsier fl- fucked everything up. I don't know. The person to blame is whoever decided to subjugate a majority of the population into slavery and, which is uh, yeah no fair do point it in the name that of the is, lord ruler well it was it, the lord ruler it didn't strike me as the lord ruler being the one that 
was actually in charge of the enslavement. That seemed more in his name, but under him. So maybe the obligators, the Lord ruler didn't seem to really give a shit about any of the individuals within the, within the, within his dominance, you know, he seemed completely Mm -hmm. preoccupied. Yeah. I, I think that it's tough to to say say at this point. That's not to say he like disliked what they were doing. Like, Right, he, he didn't was have pro, a problem was, with it. Right, right. But it didn't strike me as like he was the one in charge of subjugating the ska. If that makes sense. Yes, totally understand exactly what you're going yeah. for. Although I do I do think we just don't quite have that answer from mm-hmm. him and it's unlikely that we might get that answer if that makes yeah. sense. But, yeah. Probably not. We Oh, wait. Did I did I scroll? Oh yeah. <clears throat> I want you to make We've, I've been making you make wild kind of assumptions for most of this chapter, but I want you to make the most wildest of wild predictions. We've been talking about it kind of all week. Give me, given kind of what we know, what do you make of the Hero of Ages, the Well of Ascension, the deepness, and the correlation that we've seen so far? What is the deepness? You've got more information, oh, I think, than Vin has right now, fuck. technically, by context and otherwise. I don't think I do. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got technically more context than she does. I don't think it's more information. I don't sure. think it gives me anything extra. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So she's trying to put it together. I want you to try to put it together. What is the deepness? What are any of these things? So the best I can come up with is almost like a yin-yang sort of positive, negative energy sort of avatars. Like the deepness is the counterbalance to the hero of ages and the well of ascension is like the, the place where both of their powers can be realized to a certain extent. And both of them have to be there in order for it to erupt i guess i i don't know man that's my best guess is like the well of ascension is the meeting ground between the positive and negative energies of this weird woven into the fabric of being power that exists within this universe and deepness hero of ages are two opposing forces that harness it okay i don't know that's I'm going to be really interested to come back and like listen to my like can we make this a prediction for the entire series? I uh, I'm going to hold that until we get answers. I'm holding all of them until we get answers. That's been my rule for these now. We did not abandon leftover predictions from book 1. They're in the bottom of the document still. Good so to know. unlike okay, Red Rising, perfect. we are keeping track of them all for as long as we need to. Sounds great. Let's so, do it. Yes. Yep, making that a prediction. So the mist spirit thinking back to the stabbing becomes even more interesting given we're getting just the details that might have been underneath the surface before what is this manifestation pj fuck you (laughs) fuck you so hard (laughs) why are you even asking me this question i have no fucking clue (laughs) i just figured i'd I'd just i just continue to softball pitch the questions while we're while we're on a roll you know it's kind of like it's i have no idea i don't know Huh. Now I, you're making me do it, Crossland. You're making me think in ways that don't matter. Like, I'm thinking about the juxtaposition of these two questions. And <laughs> are they connected in some way? Like, is this missed character part of the deepness? Did he hail from the Well of Ascension? 
Is he the hero of ages? I don't know, man. Chaotic. It's properly chaotic. All right. I'm just glad. I want to see everyone see how stressed you are when you call me after some of these weeks when you read and you're just like, I don't fucking know what anything is. <laughs> and I want to know. How dare you? How dare you? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we reading 150 pages this week? You've never said that, but I think there are days that you might feel that. There are absolutely days I feel that. I think I mentioned this in our devil's cut, but I was in the office today. Mm-hmm. So. And that's going to become more more frequent because I think we're moving back to being in office, which makes sense for my position because we're supporting the shop floor. So it makes total sense. But I listened to this section of the book four times today in audiobook while I was working. So I had to keep like stopping myself and being like, oh, nope, this is this is the end. Hard cut, hard cut. And I'd like take out my headphones and like pause it and like back up. But yeah, I wish I could have just... I don't know, listened for four more sections of our podcast during work today would have been way easier. But instead, I do that with The Lord of the Rings. Have you been re-listening to The Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's a good idea. Don't forget, we have Gideon the ninth read, though. I've got a a couple plane rides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only like 16 hours, and that's unsped up. So I'll listen to Gideon the ninth and play Bioshock boom boom sounds like a good time maybe not at the same time well depends we switch to ellen wherein the armies are digging in and ellen speculates a bit about canning and technology i just find the little note about canning like so real (laughs) like it's truly like it gives us a perspective on where their technology is at and how big of a deal that is but it's also really appreciated that like more than anything else i really really appreciated the yeah, just the the rooted note of where they were in technology compared to mm-hmm. like our evolution. Yeah, so. it's very grounding. So it does give us a perspective and a timeline that we can kind of play with in our heads. So that said, I don't know when canning started on like historical level and on like an industrial level. I have no idea. Canning was not invented until 1809. That's like steam engines existed at that point, didn't they? Ah, maybe not quite. I don't think so. See, Industrial Revolution was definitely not quite. Definitely not at all. That would be during the time of George Washington. Steam engines were not around when George Washington was around. Nearer to the Civil War, so 1860s. Yep. That's only 50 years (laughs) cross. Okay, for the record, the first steam engine was technically invented in 1698, but most, it was not really adapted into things until much later. So steam engines technically existed, but they didn't really have a way of using them effectively as big things to move things, but they were able to use them in some factories for specific purposes. So around 1800. So at the same time that canning became big is when like road vehicles started to pop up with steam engines and steam locomotives were right around there as well, right around the 1800 mark. So right around the time the canning came around, steam engines technically came around in our timeline. Yeah. But they don't need steam engines because they have canals, PJ. They're going to fucking wish they had a steam engine at some point. <laughs> yeah, but when you can when you can just steel push everywhere, who gives a shit? Once Not- our boy once our boy Ham punches through the canal. okay so the the getting back to the canning the reason that canning is important is because the armies out there have been dug in for a prolonged siege and this is something that's going to make uh the food last longer on the side of the 
seizures. And so they are going to have more access to food for longer. But I think the more important part of the scene that's really kind of a, a big part of the conversation here is Ellen and clubs exchanging what is a, a very honest block of dialogue and clubs basically says that he's known worse leaders, but he's also known hell of a lot better leaders than Ellen. And that experience is really the foundation for leadership. And he poses kind of a challenge to him, which is, will this siege of Luthadel be your pits of Hathston in directly comparing him to Kelsier? Yeah. yeah. What would you, what'd you think about that? So I took it even a little bit more general, less directly comparing to Kelsier, but I felt like this exchange was super, super necessary from Ellen's point of view. Yeah. Because it lets Ellen know that he's got somewhere to go. He's got, he's got a long way to go, but he's not a total fuck up and the crew isn't nitpicking but they're genuinely looking out for the best interest of Luthadel and the central dominance at large. And just that putting him in the middle sort of gives him the understanding that like, Hey, we're not just ragging on you for the sake of ragging on you. Like we're, we're actually being real here and we have no reason to rag on you. We have no reason to like elevate you unnecessarily. Here's where you are get better if you need to be better. And Ellen seems to take that to heart. And maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit too much here, but that's, that's what I would have taken from that conversation, I think. And that's kind of what Ellen seems to take from it from a, like an emotional standpoint. I don't think he explicitly says anything like that, but his disposition, like he doesn't seem it feels like a couple chapters ago, he would have been off put by the fact that they were ragging on him. But here after conversations with the terrorist woman that's come and just how frank but fair clubs was in this conversation put like it was just kind of perfect placement of these comments that got to the root of the problem. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it, it. I do. I might be putting way too much weight on this, but that's that no, was my I, feeling through this conversation. I, I don't think you are. I think that I think that we're putting different weights on the conversation, right? On on like different sides of it's good for Ellen to be brought into this conversation, to have this kind of moment of of clarity. And I think you're right. I think I might have been pulling too directly on Kelsier because of that sort of direct metaphor that's made between the pits of Hatson in this moment. But I think mm -hmm. that he's clubs is speaking more general and clubs is probably the most brutally honest of any of the crew members and always has been kind of combination, yeah. the most secretive and the most honest. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with, with what he said in the slightest, I mean, to varying degrees, right? This is, I think Tinwell makes a bigger point of this a little bit later, but it's time to be a man of action, not a man of words is almost explicitly said by Tindwell in the next, in the next chunk, which mm -hmm. again, we've talked about this a lot with another character, but like, yeah, it's time to put up or shut up, dude. And in the same way clubs is saying, you know, it's, it's time to put up or shut up. Yeah. I feel like it dumbed down what you were saying as opposed to how elevated you were there, but I got, no, I got seeped into verbose and maybe a little bit convoluted. So no, I, I think it made sense. I just like, yeah, I went the opposite direction for some reason. I don't know. 
that doesn't happen often crossland it's true generally you well I. I mean it's yeah <laughs> well it's funny bound to happen sometime so as we said we go from that scene and then we're back with tindwell talking about how ellen commands himself his stature his behavior and how he must also command others as a king we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were comparing or sorting tindwell in kind of their places with our various protagonists here but i find this to be really interest fucking shit i got lost in my own notes and i don't have interesting wrote here i have fascinating but i'm jumped down a blind and then got confused anyway i find this fascinating to compare with both just, clubs' just impression start, all right all right start and then we're back before with, that it's not yep, gonna edit well well i i know how to cut this together fair i've i've gotten pretty good at fixing these fuck-ups if i make them like this anyway i'll just i'll just do it from the top and then we're back with Tindwell talking about how he commands himself, his stature and behavior, and how he must command others as a king. We kind of talked about this at the beginning of the episode, comparing Orsur and Tindwell and sort of their place with our protagonists inside of the story. I find this really fascinating to compare with both Clubs's impression of leadership and what a good leadership should be, as well as Ellen's previous reflections on Kelsier as a crew leader and sort of Tindwell's expectations, as we might call them, from biographies of kings of past. What do, you, what do you think of this sort of trifecta comparison that we get on Ellen's place as a leader? I know you burned a little bit of this earlier. but I, Yeah, we talked about the twin, yeah. Twindwell. Tindwell? Tindwell. Tindwell earlier, and I think I'm just going to kind of re- reiterate it a little bit here in that everything that she's saying, while it's a little bit of tough love, Almost, it's bolstering Ellen's confidence and it's making him more, it's making him into more of the kind of person that he needs to be for this position. And I think that just being in that headspace and also understanding what that headspace is, because I think that's another problem is he wasn't even thinking that he wasn't meeting what it meant to be a king. Like It hadn't crossed his mind. So being in the headspace while also being more like what he needs to be is going to give him success going forward in facing that inevitable comparison to Kelsier from basically everybody. So, yeah, I, and, and we've, we've been structuring this kind of as we've been going a little bit to kind of culminate in this point of conversation, which is that he's got to deal with Kelsier as kind of the legacy that he has to impact. Tindwill is giving him history, which is a little bit different than legacy. Legacy is very direct to me, right? So legacy is the direct thing that is being imparted upon you or that you are leaving in your stead. So that's sort of Kelsier. Tindwill is giving like historical reference and historical points to sort of broaden and saying, this is what the past says you should do. And clubs is really sort of like the applied leadership model, if that makes sense. He's like, the leaders that I've seen behave this way. And so we get three incredibly varied perspectives and exploration of thoughts on leadership and what, what it should be. But they all tie together for the most part. The only ones that are kind of slightly at odds are Tindwills and Clubs's impressions of leadership, where Club says actions are the most important things, and Tindwill basically says that it's more important to be, like, commanding and direct. And, like, while everything that Tindwill is saying is of benefit, it doesn't directly correlate with what Clubs is looking for perfectly. I don't think it contradicts it either, though. No, it doesn't contradict it. It's just, like, it's a miss... 
they're pieces of the puzzle, hmm. but we're dealing with an incomplete picture. Yeah, from both sides. But I think yeah. the two of them together make for a solid framework for what it means to be. Yeah, we a built a corner with the three yeah. pieces, you know, and so we can start mm-hmm. the rest of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good metaphor. We did it. Yeah. We did it. <laughs> we um, figured out kingship guys we figured we, we out did what it, it means to be a in, king in under 10 minutes <laughs> crossland between the two of us who would be the king and who would be the shadow government that is such a fascinating question i think the answer is is that you would make me king naturally so that you could run the shadow government i'd absolutely do that because right. if i wasn't the shadow government i'd be scared of who the shadow government right was. right exactly <laughs> but at the same time i think it is almost equally as logical that you would be the king face the kingly face that gets puppeted by me and i'm secretly also the shadow government behind you no but you think you the are puppet monster <laughs> <laughs> no but you think you are but i've cut the strings a long time ago so you're <laughs> like ah, i can have this over okay. you and it's like no you don't no, but i'm gonna pre- like you really pretend how like you it would do. go yeah i don't think i'd be a good public servant i don't think i'd be a good like public leader in any sort of way i, I think... can't wait for us to <laughs> no no i i really i man i don't want to talk about it too much of course but i can't wait for us to read first law for some of these reasons there's like some public people that are members of the public government that are just so incompetent and it's so real it's so good (laughs) i love it it's so funny okay anyway yeah i mean if we're talking shadow government i don't know this is a good thing to leave up to a poll all right I'm gonna put it on Instagram. You better, you better answer the poll. Who's better left in charge of a shadow government, PJ or I? Who's the better face of a king, PJ or I? Keep in mind, you we can't fill both roles. It's, it's got to be one well, or the okay, other. Okay, just just two answers then. Yeah, PJ face, Crossland shadow. PJ shadow, Crossland face. All right, got it. Yep, sounds good. We'll we'll discuss I'm the so results excited. next week. Maybe in a devil's cut. We'll see. <laughs> no, we'll. We're going to argue about them. Yeah, it will It will be a great time. Okay, so <clears throat> all told, there is other training to be done beyond just standing properly and wearing a pretty suit that's tailored specifically and getting a haircut that matches said suit. There's also that and training in the art of dueling. Ellen asks if he should begin sparring openly with Ham and Finn, to which Tindwell retorts back with a swift, no, do it in secret, you fucking moron. She doesn't say fucking moron, but she should have. Yeah, this this is kind of an interesting starting point. I'm cutting that. I think it's a really intricate balancing act. Wow, it's such a better between... way of saying interesting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> intricate not... does not mean the same thing as interesting. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, is that you effectively describe something way better than saying it's a really interesting bit between competency <laughs> and public perception, right? Like it's way you've wrote it better than I I fucked up, okay? <laughs> Alright, let's cut Go, all of that yeah. out because you went ahead and like read I, ahead in what I was saying. This'll this'll make a little this'll make a great little devil's cut bit. <laughs> It'll be fine. Do you want me to start or do you want to just start back? Go ahead. Alright. I think it's a really intricate balancing act between competency and public perception. Which makes total sense, but I would have never thought of it. Like, clearly Ellen didn't either. Basically, by that comparison, I'm equipped to be in Ellen's position, and I'd like for you to refer to me as King PJ from now on. 
We're going to be voting I on this. should win the poll. <laughs> the poll for king. <laughs> we'll be voting I on this. I want to be shadow government, but I think I could be king. PJ, I think you would make a very regal king and people would vote for you just on the nature of stature and their utter shock. I, man... You could also you drink no all of the other how kings. Awkward looking, I look like most people don't know how awkward I look in like formal clothes. It would be well. I don't think you look awkward. I don't think that's a perception issue of your own. It depends on how think, well fit the suit is. <laughs> I think you looked good at Bill's wedding. I think you I also look looked good I at did, Adam's wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. at the very least. But but I would be a king say, with like brewery hoodie like a zip up hoodie on absolute <laughs> shitlord of a king your public perception would be in the toilet no one would respect you but everyone would listen to your advisors because we would whip them oh no i'm the shadow government man what do you want from me <laughs> vote for crossland shadow government get whipped <laughs> get whipped and by whipped i really meant like whipping votes not like actually whipping subs for, the, for crossland i was i <laughs> We're back to we're back to the BDSM comment on the top of the hour. All right, no, to to kind of put a bow on this whole section, I really enjoy this chapter and this back half of this chapter in part because we start to really kind of pick at Ellen's character in a big way. Previously, in the previous book, he had three POV chapters. He was you know a character that was really kind of tangential to Vin. And was made to be, you know, kind of a foil to Vin's character. But now he's he's the real deal. He's a real main character. And so we, we have to pick at his character and kind of get an understanding of him. And what makes a good king is sort of the central thesis here. And this is yeah. clearly being established as his potential arc for the book. And it's being set up thematically. I, I really enjoy this kind of question through him. I think we've hit a few different points on like major arcs and major growing points that i can see going forward and i think i think it's gonna be really fun to see where that goes where it would be but it's kind of a shame because he's gonna turn out to be the conjurer the whole time i have nothing but the deepest respect for you pj <laughs> as a friend as a person as a co-business owner but dear God, you have to trust like one of these characters no, someday. I don't. You don't. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't do. have. You can't. Make yes, me. you do. God damn it! As king, I promise I will not trust anyone. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So with that, we move into chapter seventeen. We've got the logbook entry here. This one's pretty short, and I think I made mention of it earlier. If only the terrorist religion and belief in the anticipation hadn't spread beyond our people. That's it. That's that's the whole thing. Hmm. This is suggesting something about the religion that it's almost been like co-opted by the populace on the whole on the outside to foist up the hero to defeat the deepness. I, I think we had spoken a little bit about this before, but... Did you have any comments, if that makes sense, on this little... It's just a sentence, but, you know. Yeah. I guess I don't really know enough about the terrorist religion to understand what he actually means here. It seems like the only people pushing him forward are the terrorist men, at least from the perspective of the logbook from the previous book and from these log entries from this book. Like, we don't get outside influence we don't get even commentary until this point about the general populace outside of their like their adventuring party 
to a certain extent. So it, it clearly that exists and we are not presented with any of that influence. So it'll be, I don't know, perspective shattering to a certain extent to learn that there were hundreds of thousands of people cheering them on. Like that'd be a really strange shift in perspective. Yeah. If, if this was like a thing that was heralded across the entire land, as opposed to just this quiet like village of people that then traveled up the mountainside, which is what it feels like, you know? So, Okay, so I think that what Quan is trying to paint a picture here of, though, is that it was more widely adopted as though Elendi was going to be this hero of ages, that he was going to save all these people. Because as depicted in the previous logbook, Quan is described as the announcer, the one who is to proclaim that the hero is to come. And so he proclaimed that Elendi was the hero, and the anticipation is this... I mean, it's very synonymous with its own definition, but it is this sort of idea that all of these people of whom are aware of the Hero of Ages will then spread the word and, like, build up this sort of legend underneath them. So, yeah, even even then, though, taking that into consideration, the way that I understood even that sort of announcer idea was, like, announcing it to... Maybe a hundred people in the same village mm. that they lived in. Like I had a completely different scale of what we were dealing with. Got it. Got it. So this like, broke I, your scale. I felt like this was something very, very small that Got exploded it. as opposed to something that was an entire like I'm not gonna say worldwide, but a very large like a continent stage. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That that was being informed of their actions. So for me, this was a perspective because I hadn't even considered that it was that well spread. Okay. Yeah. I, I And I think that this is meant to enlarge that a little bit. I, I don't think that we've been given – this is kind of a combination of things meant to – Quan's perspective in general, so far as we've been exposed, is meant to give us – clarity to some degree to Elendi's journal that we'd been reading logbook that we'd been reading previously so the two books are distinct in their own ways but and it feels like they are at times at odds because the people themselves Quan and Elendi are at odds naturally and so leaning on these entirely as pure sources of information is is difficult to do to to remove their perspective in in their own rights but I I tend to lean on Quan's side a little bit more because I think that Quan isn't blinded by the like pursuit of heroism, if that makes sense. Like the sort of sanctification of what he's done, what he's doing that happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's kind of my perspective. But yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult to parse. We're still at a point where we can debate this because it's not. It's not set in stone, and I don't know that it will ever be again. It's just a matter of... Well, it's set in metal, so... Fuck you. And rubbed onto carbon, (laughs) motherfucker. (laughs) So, it's it's nice to follow this up with Orsor being kind of funny, right? Talking to Vin as she's looking to write for the first time on the ground. It's kind of the small moment, one that I enjoy, is he's like, well, you could go put your, your stuff on the desk and write on the desk. I think that's what most people do. Why are you writing on the ground? And it's just a... Well, yeah. leave me alone. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. 
on top of being sarcastic, he's such a fun, surly bastard of a character. Yeah. And like, it just makes me want more from him. It makes me like look forward to seeing him grow as a character become more prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's what I mean by grow, grow as in like grow in prevalence as opposed to like seeing his growth arc, which we talked a lot about for Vin mm -hmm. and probably will talk a lot about for Ellen. Mostly. I just want more or sort is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I don't disagree at all. I think that it is a great, a great bit and more or sewer and more Chandra. I just like, I remember at this point specifically in the story just being like, I want to know more about the Chandra. I want to know more about the Chandra. Give me more about the Chandra. What's going on there? Like explain yep. a little bit more of this. And that was one of the things that I, I think I thirst for the most inside of the story. So I don't know if you experienced the same sort of thing, but what I kept experiencing was thinking about what he's saying and like getting caught up with like, Oh, he's, he's making these funny conversations and then realizing it's coming from a dog. When when she says that he frowns and that it looks unnatural <laughs> on a dog, you're like, oh, it would look really unnatural for a dog to actually frown, wouldn't it? Like, it would look really bad. <laughs> My dogs frown at me. No, but like, I get have the bones bend in a wrong way. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, it's very intentional. It's, it's so, it's so clever. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Of course, Ellen catches her in this moment when Vin is studying like he might have in the last book, exploring thoughts and writing on the floor, and he catches her up quickly on the events so far with Tindwell. We then get notified of Straff's mysterious messenger of whom has shown up. They leave the scene of Vin's kind of room that she doesn't like spending time in but now has found herself in. And upon Vin seeing this stranger, she immediately notes that he is the Watcher. And he gives up that his name is Zane. PJ, this is a drink for you? I don't know if it is. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure. I still think Zane is Reen. Ah, uh, okay. All right. But I'll drink anyway. I mean, I guess if it's right the other way, we do the thing where I take two, right? So. Yeah. I still think Zane is Reen. Specifically because there's another connection to her mother here. And. What's the connection to her mother? So Reen, Reen is Ben's half brother. Yep. On on their mother's side. Yep. Correct. Yep. Vin is a very pure Mistborn. Mm -hmm. A very pure uh, Alamancer. Yep. Through uh, from Tividian Tikiel. Tividian. And if <laughs> the same woman had a relationship with Straff, that would oh, also okay. be a fairly pure. Bloodline, but also you said there was a connection. Sh You're drawing a connection. No, I just want to no, clarify no, no. that the connection is the voices. Oh, interesting. And Vin mentioned that. I think she mentioned that her mother heard voices and like heard heard voices that told her to do things like kill her sister. Right. Pretty sure that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think Zane is also Reen. That's my. All right. <laughs> That's that's my guess, right? That's now. your buck wild off the wall theory. I've I've pulled so many out of you that I'm I'm not surprised Weird, that you're weirdly that makes my like guess more founded. Hmm. And I didn't expect that to happen. Okay. I expected things to get whittled away, but there's been nothing that has disproven any of my points. And there's only been more compounding evidence that 
tells me that this is her brother. That would strangely, like, not really, but that would strangely make Vin and Ellen, like, step-siblings, and that's upsetting to some degree. It is. Entirely. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I just want to clarify. I don't, I don't have a rebuttal to that. Yep. Okay. I mean, she's already a teenager while he's yeah. 22 or something like that. Yeah. Did you have any other thoughts on the on the section outside <laughs> of the, blow past the, absolute, the absolute like crazy ass Zane Reen theory that I love? So we get we get Zane, but I want to back up a little bit earlier in that question and we get Ellen catching Vin studying, which is super fucking cute. Like it's just Yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a cute moment that is inconsequential overall, but just builds their relationship, I guess, in our minds. Like we get that their relationship has progressed. We get context clues for that, but this is the first time this book that we've really seen any sort of actual romantic interaction between them other than like a couple kisses here and there. Mm -hmm. This is more real than that, less superficial than that. So that was cool to see, but the meeting with Zane was fun. I don't know. It was weird. Vin points out to, to Ellen that she knows that Zane is a misborn doesn't say anything more than that which like she doesn't say that she's seen him before which could be a commentary on her still not like being able to wholly trust anybody or maybe she doesn't want to influence anything that ellen would say to this person by giving too much information there's a couple different ways that could be read but it felt odd to me that that's all she said was be careful that's a mistborn i don't know yeah that feels more like just a defensive reaction you know just to ensure safety mm-hmm. more than anything else not yeah. not as though there's anything else to really know but it is again as though she's not fully trusting this has been kind of i think to some degree receding into her old ways even though simultaneously she's acting defensive of those that she loves and cares about like this is an interesting fuck this is a confluence of her two I was going to say an interesting confluence. This is a confluence of her two, the two sides of her personality as they're trying to come together. This is like, yeah, this is Honorable Volette shining through as well as like Vin, the street urchin, figuring it out. So, yeah. So <clears throat> getting back to Zane, Zane acts as an ambassador on the part of Lord Straff denying Ellen's request to have him come to Luthadel, but instead extends an invitation to Ellen to join him out in his camp. Ellen states that he will consider this and Zane departs without a date or time as Straft had hoped for as, you know, he had expected his son to leave with the time to go meet up with the, you know, mm-hmm. he expected his sons to get together and like figure out a time that they're going to meet, even though they don't know that they're brothers. Well, one of them doesn't know, but what do you make of our introduction to Zane? I don't know what to make of him. Okay. He's shifty and I think intentionally so, but going back to my first read on this situation, first time I read through this, I had no idea what to think of him. But I was pretty confident in myself in thinking that he wasn't actually an emissary of Lord Venture. 
and he was a rogue third party agent trying to like get Ellen to leave the keep and to meet up with Lord Venture to like trap both of them at once. That was my, like, that was where my mind was going because he didn't seem like an emissary. He didn't seem like a representative. He seemed different. And we also had the knowledge that he was a misborn and you made very clear note and very clear point that he was against Lord sets people last week, which makes sense now that you point that out. But I think even so, given that context, he didn't feel like he was for anybody, you know? Yes. Because, because he yeah. helped Vin more than anything. So, And that does make him this interesting kind of will he, won't he third party element, right? Like it feels, it gives him a sort of mysterious nature, right? Like it before does. we knew him as the watcher and that was a natural moment of mystery. Now that we know that he's Zane, the, some of that, <laughs> some of that mystery is, has shifted a little bit. Right. And I think that I don't completely disagree with your thought that he isn't, he doesn't think of himself as some kind of a third party. And some of that is when we get into his perspective in particular, he is, rather repulsed by his own father he uh is also he thinks himself superior to just about everyone else who has an alamancer or mistborn so he does have this very other element about him beyond some of the stranger things that we'll definitely talk about when we get into his perspective he does have that sort of other third party element here like, he could be a turncoat in any direction at any moment. I mean, we get that. Yeah. Yeah. We get multiple examples of that going yeah, forward. Yeah, right. Literally, like, the poisoning. Like, come on. <laughs> we'll talk about that a lot in a bit. But, like, holy fuck. What? Zane, <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah. And and Zane and Vin then again, like, meet later in the night, right? They're sparring. It's a fairly violent fight. It goes from feeling as though it could have been, like, just a sort of natural kind of training exercise moment into something that escalates into actual combat closer to like a grudge match or a boxing match between two boxers. Would you make of the sort of incredible action scene a, and there's a lot of great nuances. Brent Sanderson destroys these things and he uses them to reinvigorate the story of tempo. But what would you think of this sparring match in particular? Throughout the entire thing, I never felt like Vin was actually in danger actually like but you're right the sparring nature of it like the almost game nature of it evolves pretty quickly into something a little bit more serious and i i as far as i could tell it never felt life-threatening or actually like dire at any point but it did get more and more serious as time went on but i think he was really more than anything, just curious how how strong she actually was. He clearly understands that he's weirdly powerful for what he is or wh- where he fits into. Like he he understands that he is an exception to the rule, and she seems to be rivaling that to a certain extent. That's the that's the vibe I got. The vibe, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good read on the whole scene. We don't get like. We don't get that much solid about what Zane thinks about 
Vin at this point. We get a couple of different elements in, in different moments. He makes one statement that comes off really direct and kind of harsh to her about her like potential and why she's doing what she's doing, but not a whole lot else. That's more fodder for why I think that he's Reen. He does have a Reen tone about him. I, I won't disagree with you there. Like, I mean, his entire rhetoric so far to Vin is basically rebelling against the noble people that ra- that that they yeah. like were raised underneath. Yeah, you know, yeah, to, right, right. And the the odd thing to me about him is like a he doesn't use like a miscloak. He has none of the the typical mistborn tendencies right he follows none of them he's got the like he just he's strange he's odd he's a little bit different in every mm-hmm. every single way so yeah he is fucking yep. weirdo fucking weirdo all right with that we get into our final chapter of the week chapter 18 and that is going to be in 204. And this chapter is really interesting. But first, we've got the logbook to talk about here. If only the deepness hadn't come when it did, providing a threat that drove men to desperation in both action and belief. This is, and I'm not, I'm not debating saying interesting or anything like that. This, this phrase, this, this sentence is kind of again. To your point that you've been reiterating is kind of placing the blame elsewhere. Quan is not a stoic. <laughs> he's not looking. No. He's not looking internally <laughs> for a whole lot of this shit. He's blaming a lot of ex- external sources. He's effectively pinning it on the deepness striking at the right time that like shook the religion up and made people look for a hero. Like whereas the entire time he's been doing this, right. It depends on what the deepness is. If he actually has an understanding of what the deepness is, that entirely changes our read on this, I think. But yeah, regardless, sometimes, most of the time, I feel like these logbook entries aren't explicitly related to these chapter sections. And sometimes they are. This one seems a little bit more ambiguous, but I'd like to be able to make the connection somehow to Zane. And the deepness in some way, because Zane is very clearly an oddity when it comes to elementic abilities. Like it, there are a lot of different things within Alamancy and Mistborn sort of culture that he does not prescribe to, and he's way more powerful than any of them. I don't know. I don't know. It's trying to trying to make a connection more than anything else. Is where sure. it's coming from. Sure. I Forcing don't, a connection, I guess. I don't think that they're completely disrelated, but it is, you know. And I, I think that that's part of the the sort of mystery of Sanderson in these books is, is he trying to directly correlate this with the immediate text or is he teasing something in the future to be revealed? Like, yeah, am, I, am I reading two stories... Call. Am I reading two stories that are simultaneously unfolding or am I reading a passage that is informing the text that I'm reading? So that's that is the the tricky bit here. We open this. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. We open this chapter with one of my favorite lines in the book. Kill him. God whispered. 
I fucking love that. I love the way that Michael Kramer says it. I love the way that it reads on the page being that that's the first line in the paperback. And so it's like all kind of in the large font capital letters before it reverts into regular typeface. It's so great. And then we realize that we're in Zane's perspective, right? And that this is Zane's thoughts. And Zane is seemingly clinically insane. He's definitely, at the very least, he experiences dysregulated thoughts. And he, you know, is very aware of what is wrong with him at the same time. So he's he's kind of cognizant of the whole thing. I, I'm definitely not. We are definitely not psychologists. And we don't pretend to play them on the internet. But using Zane's own language and definition, he believes that there is something seriously wrong with him. He defines himself as insane. What do you make of Zane's insanity, as he says, and the voice in his head? My, well, I guess, first of all, I don't think, I don't think it makes for a good story to just have somebody who has a mental illness that, like, that isn't an actual external force telling them to kill people. In, in a world like this, that feels weird to entertain as an idea. And I think it only makes sense for this, this voice to be an actual tangible entity within this world. You know? Do you get what I'm saying there? I do totally get you because everything else is so well explained that if this were something normal and mundane, that would decide of the canons of probability. You know what I mean? Like if it I, were, I, if it were grounded... Think- I don't think necessarily outside the canons of possibility because that exists. There are people that experience things like this. It's but just when we're dealing with the fantastic, you when know, we're dealing with the fantastic and we're, when we're dealing with main characters of narrative story, that feels like a weird red herring to place, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. So from that meta perspective, I don't think it's just him being in, an insane person, but approaching it less from a meta perspective i think it it seems like there's probably some connection to something inherently evil i think the deepness whatever the fuck that is so i I, my thought process here is that he is the conduit or avatar of the deepness at this point whatever that means i don't know what that means but i think that that exists And I think that's what he is. It's so weird. It's so weird making several jumps of assumption to make a guess, you know, because I don't know what the deepness is. I don't know how the deepness exists, but I think he's connected to the deepness. So I have to make this connection and I have to make that connection and I have to like tie them all together. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, and I think that that those are reasonable assumptions to to make as it stands. Like like you said, I think it's really important to identify this. Like we don't we don't try to make light of mental illnesses. We both have our own things that we deal with in our on our own. But also on top of that, these it, it would feel so. It would feel very. I would feel very cheated by the story. If this weren't rooted in something fantastical, because almost everything that is external like this or that is given some sort of external lean really isn't. It would feel like a cheat for it to be something that's like, oh, yeah, that actually is just all in his head. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like Like God whispering. Yeah. He just is insane. (laughs) He just is batshit crazy. Yeah. Like that. That's not satisfying. No. Right. But 
that doesn't have anything to do with actually reading the book here. It's an entirely meta perspective on it. So, well, but I think it's important to bring that in when you it know, is when for relevant. sure. So we find out shortly thereafter that he is also Ellen's brother, which is and Vin's brother. <laughs> we don't, we don't we find, don't that, find out, that out, but we do know that he's, we do know that he's Ellen's brother <laughs> while he's waiting to pick up notes from his spy, of course, above Ellen's tower where he collects those things. Any thoughts on this secret brother that Straff has kept hidden i mean that's gonna suck <laughs> when ellen finds out yeah like ellen i think more than anybody ellen's gonna be the one that like takes that to heart for some reason i don't think he needs to but i think he will like, it's gonna weirdly give him this like existential crisis for some reason and i think that'll get revealed almost tactically for that reason I don't know. Do we know anything about Ellen's mom, by the way? Ever been talked about? No. Okay. I don't think so. The only thing that we for sure know is that she's completely of noble blood. So, like, he's not a... Yeah. It was likely... So, because he was raised in noble society, it was likely, like, a legal wedding of some kind. But we don't have a Mrs. Venture in the picture at the moment. Okay. So, we've known for a long time... Since the first book, that Straff is a ten-eye. And a piece of shit. Well, yeah. I mean, It's important to clarify. It's always important to clarify. But that's not relevant here. My thought behind all of this, knowing that Ellen's brother is a super high-level, like, crazy powerful Mistborn, I think before the end of this trilogy, we're going to see Ellen snap and experience alimantic abilities bubbling through. Not sure what yet, but I don't know. I think it'll happen. I think we've got a lot to explore here yet with we do. Zane and Ellen and the Straff family, which is which is now <laughs> yeah, become a focus. Is, like now we've got a trifecta. We've got a family to explore. This is wild. <laughs> Is this is any of this what you anticipated, by the way, no. on a on a story level of like what you thought this book might cover? Nope. Cool. All right. Just curious. No, nope. I'm cool for it, yeah. though. I'm here. All right. All right. Zane also we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but Zane also has this like superiority complex over other people being that he is a misborn and is very different than all of the other misborn perspectives that we've experienced. It, it really doesn't jive with kind of our understanding for the most part. And even those that we've interacted with, like they don't necessarily function or think the same way. Why do you think he is this way? <laughs> like, why do you think Zane <laughs> do be the way he do? I mean, I think this feeds into the idea that he's Marine. Yeah. Okay. But let's take that off the table entirely. I think it still can be explained. And a big part of that is the fact that he's been hidden all of his, li- all of his life. He has this in, like, he's an adult and he has an adult brother and they both have a relationship with their father, good or bad. Both of them bad, I think. One of them is uh, kind of non-contact and one of them is constantly try to murder. Like, But they're both adults and right. Zane has been hidden his entire life. So, I don't know. He seems to kind of resent the people that get to live their lives out in the open. And he clearly has this, like, 
this power that puts him ahead of any Alamancer, any mundane person, any Mistborn. Like, he is more powerful than basically anybody he'll ever meet. So being able to gloat with that power over literally anybody that just gets to be who they are in the open, I think kind of makes sense to a certain degree. And I think that's backed up by the fact that he is constantly that that's reiterated this, this section when he's talking to Vin, when he's talking to Vin about them and Mm -hmm. being basically a slave to them being the noble people. Yes. So he doesn't identify as a noble person at all being born to and identifying as the son of Lord Venture. That is such an important, I think, clarification here with him is that he really identifies as a Mistborn first, not as any sort of racial identification and and believes that to be kind of the superiority complex. He reminds me, there are two different people that he reminds me of. One is one inside of the story, so we'll talk about him first. He reminds me of like a spoiled Kelsier, if that makes sense. Like if Kelsier is in the wrong environment and we're given, like if Kelsier yeah. was put through the ringer in a very different way emotionally, he could have came out this way. He could have totally been like, I am an idealized version of man and I, I am kind of the height of superiority. Kelsier doesn't have that problem. Zane clearly kind of matches that a little bit in, in his own context. But I think that he more closely than any other character in the series so far mirrors Magneto in terms of his ideology and his efforts and the way that he thinks about things. Like he very narrowly kind of supports the brotherhood ideology of like Mistborn are the best dude and is like why are you enslaved to them I can I don't have a counter like I I don't have any reason why you're wrong there and I completely agree with what you're saying Magneto I think is mm, keep in mind I'm an uber Magneto fan I've read all of the comics that he's in I love Magneto yeah and I'm not saying you're gonna dump on that he exhibits that sort of feeling. Yeah, they would empathize. <laughs> they would perfectly. <laughs> they would Just absolutely kidding. empathize. It's a, it's a joke for Devil's Cut listeners. Folks, join the Patreon. Anyway. Yeah. We talk about sympathize versus empathize and whether or not you can do both at the same time. If you would rather be PJ or Cross. We did. Spoiler alert. That. We sided both on one side. Both of us want to be PJ. <laughs> it's true. Fuck you. You spoiled it. Anyway. But magneto magneto seems to be more trying to gain like trying to wage a war and like grow a resistance against everyone whereas zane seems to be more like doesn't necessarily want to rebel against them but doesn't want to be subjugated by them either Mm -hmm. you know wants to break off the subtle subtle differences but you're saying Magneto wants to break off? No, Magneto wants to fight. Expunge. Yeah. Expunge. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Whereas Zane just doesn't want to answer to them. Sure. But He's he doesn't more of a necessarily rebel to want authority. to lead them or subjugate them. Or it's kind of like, like that. It's kind of like a rogue's rationale, I think, in like X2 and stuff like that. So I can feel that. Yeah, yeah. I get it. 
It's it's not necessarily a super huge difference, but I think it's a distinction nonetheless. Yeah. 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 But yes, I love that comparison and I hadn't thought about that ahead of time. And yeah. I like it. I like I like that. I think that's going to shape the way that I think about Reen going forward. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> of course, this is another lens of which we get to view Straff through. He seemingly digs at the ATM supply, and if it's been located inside the city, or if it even exists in the first place, he's starting to question this. But it also poses an oversight of Straff that he believes that the Mistborn are addicted to ATM. He also makes an assertion that he thinks it unbelievable that Vin killed the Lord Ruler. What what do you make of of these large assumptions by Straff Venture? We just have to talk about how bullshitty this man is. I don't quite understand how Straff could have been so integral to the collection <laughs> of ATM and yeah. not actually have a firm grasp on how it's actually used. You know? Like he I, understands the power of it, I'm assuming. I don't I don't I don't know if that's the right thing to assume. I'm I'm gonna be honest with you. Yeah. I think that mm. seriously, I think that because he's a misting and I think only Mistborn really get it, I think that there aren't that many people that maybe understand it. And that maybe. might be a part of the Lord Ruler's puppeting and power over the whole thing. So Well he talks to Zane about the ATM supply and about ex- yeah. like extinguishing vin's supply of it yep so to me that that makes me assume that he understands how it's used and what it does but not necessarily like the that's fair he might understand that it's important to alamancers but i think he's assuming that it's an addiction yeah like i think that he might bet that vin dies as a part of the siege if she doesn't have any more atm you know yeah like succumbs to it yeah I could see that. He's got big assumptions that just feel mm-hmm. very reaching, especially because we understand so well how ATM works that this is almost unbelievable that he has these kind of assertion, assertions. You know, how did you not learn this? I also want to bring up that during the scene, it's kind of tough to to mention, but Reen, or sorry, not Reen, Jesus Christ, was not a good Freudian slip. Zane here I'm is... I'm taking that as... It's not confirmation. It's not confirmation. I swear to God. We've been doing video for these for a while now, which is great. It's great to see your shining face. I love it. But I have done so well at not breaking this entire time. And that is the, the, I didn't break. It was not a break. Anyone who's, anyone who knows what's going on knows it's not a break. But I misspoke for the first time in a while. So backing up, Zane in some of these scenes also exhibits some, Again, feeding into kind of the the traits of his character, he is controlling through his dysregulated thoughts. He is controlling God and the inclination and the argument to kill Straff by cutting himself inside of these scenes and like actively doing so to create something for him to focus on. And this is really disturbing. I mean, to be honest, like this is. This is fucking crazy. And I I mean, I don't mean cut that. This is fucking in this is fucking wild. Yeah. So, yeah. It's also done in view of and in the presence of Straff. Yeah. So he's who, very aware. So, 
like my assumption is that Straff completely understands what he's doing here. Especially like that especially mm-hmm. gets it becomes clear pretty soon that like Straff completely understands that he's constantly under threat of assassination from his own son. Yeah. The the other part of this I think that feeds into this is that Straff does believe that his son is abnormal and crazy and he feeds into that as well and so he just sees this and understands that this is what he kind of has to tolerate to have a missed porn so i think he just also puts up with it so yeah that's fair but but to your point the the poisoning of straps tea has to be one of the strangest things i've seen a character do this like a straff is aware of it b like Zane is aware that it's not going to work and like he doesn't know why he's doing it he's not listening to God when he does it he's just doing it because he's setting Straff on edge like keep him on his toes he's poisoning his own tin eye of a father who's aware that's happening in the first place and then his father chooses to like follow through and drink the whole fucking thing what kind of a nightmare family is this but it was also served to him by somebody who Zane says was like complicit in this and like wanted to follow through and she gets like taken away. Right. Is that, I don't think, no, I don't think that happens here, but hold please. Like I, I felt like someone gets taken away. What page is this on? It's around two ten ish. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 Zane basically sells out the girl who brought the tea. Yep. And says she wanted to kill him, too. Yeah. God, Zane's motivations are just so... other people to do this, too. Yeah, Zane's Zane's motives are so in question. Like, so in question. Right? Like... It's so weird. Zane is a bizarre character in the best kind of way. Especially given how much page time we have with him here. It was like... It's like... 14 pages like we get a good chunk of we get a good chunk of time yeah. and lens well, into this most man of it is kill him kill him <laughs> get him get, get him. him you can get him he's like well and then like zane also debates he's like well if i delay the army more then i have more time to spar with vin and she might save me what does save me mean like what the fuck is going on in your twisted mind bro it's um, so fucked god it's so it's so crazy but the poisoning is is absolutely wild any other thoughts there? I thought the craziest part about the poisoning to me was that the fact that Straff was able to taste it and like knew instantly what it was and said that out loud to Zane who poisoned him. I can't I can't remember the, the type of poison off the top of my head, but he, like he mentions it by name and says like mentions how it tastes. Yeah. It's right. just such a strange family dynamic. I don't know. I, is it is it strange or just cruel? It can be both. Fair, <laughs> fair point. Fair point. It is both. It's both cruel and yeah. strange. I don't know. Okay, all right. With that, we we move from Zane's perspective into a perspective that I don't know how you feel about this, but I would have never imagined being in that of Lord Straff Venture. This perspective is buck wild for a number of reasons a we jump into this this perverted chauvinistic p- 
pig of a man who's an all-around awful dude. We kind of knew some of these traits beforehand in the way that he treated Ellen, but it's only made worse as he's talking about all these different things. And ooh boy, getting to live in this shithead's brain just has me on the edge as I read any of these moments. It's what a choice on Brandon's part to put us in his head and to think so vilely. What what the fuck did you think about? How'd you parse this? It just it felt gross to occupy his space a little bit. Yeah. Uh, hot take. Not a fan. Not a fan of the guy. I don't know. Dude's dude's awful. Perspective <laughs> very interesting. You know, like dude is terrible. Is. Yeah. Perspective is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like he it's kind of sad, right? Like we yeah. get the the misogyny. A little mm-hmm. bit and a little it, bit, a lot a of lot it, a bit, <laughs> a lot of it, but it makes me feel so gross being like in his skin a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, like the shittiest part of it is that I'm so looking forward to learning more of his perspective of this side of the war and all of the like, all the po- political things that are happening from his perspective cuz it's so interesting and it's like such a cool space to be in but he's just such a shitty person and i don't want to be there you know right like, it's such right. a i think that makes for a good perspective to exist here and to be able to use it sparingly maybe yeah hopefully. this is hopefully sparingly dipping yeah. into yeah well fair point dipping into like <laughs> A Song of Ice and Fire narrative. This is like jumping to most of the Lannisters. Like most of the Lannisters have kind of interestingly mm-hmm. repugnant perspectives inside of the books. And you can imagine thinking about the TV show, right? Like yeah. you don't want to spend well, who's Daddy Lannister? What's his name? We'll just call him Daddy Lannister. Tywin. Tywin Lannister. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um I didn't know where you were going with that one. <laughs> Anyway, Tywin because is a piece of shit. Like he's he is a bad father. Yeah, I, I guess I could have been going a lot of directions with Daddy Lannister. <laughs> Not thinking about that. Tywin Lannister is a bad father. Generally, like a a morally mostly correct man, but seeking for his family. Blah blah. Whatever. It, I feel a very similar but exaggerated repugnance to Straff. I don't even think they're even on the same playing yeah. field. If that makes sense, Straff is. Yeah. A completely different level of piece of shit. Mm. Yeah. 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 I got similar vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Repugnant asshole. We've said this many times. We will continue to say it forever. But the mistresses, the way he talks about women, just fucking oof, man. The way that he talks about all these concubines that he keeps around, the ska women that he sleeps with. And the he even makes mentions of like she thinks she like undress when he calls for his potion concoctions master she undresses herself thinking that like that's going to be her duty tonight and he comments on like sagging breasts and just is there's just all of this awfulness yeah in him that i feel severe venom towards i i just <laughs> i am angry i'm angry I'm glad. thinking I'm about glad that you I, are. I think any any reasonable person should be <laughs> but you like, should be Good God, Brandon. Good work. <laughs> Making no. me so mad at a character. Especially in the way that he treats this woman, I believe Amarantha, his potion master, concoction. And and she ultimately 
creates this concoction of which is a cure-all for the most part that cures him or at the very least allows for him to identify what might be what else might be poisoning him so he can drink this cure-all and and figure it out and work it out with her in combination and that's a cool it's a cool moment in its own right because we can understand that there are other sort of semi-magical properties or maybe not magical but you know properties that can break down poisons herb responses yeah fuck 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 straff venture thoughts on the the way that he thinks about women and the concubines and the concoction thing fuck i mean it, it it's unfortunate how interested i am in his like position you know yeah I get that. I I feel bad for wanting to, I feel bad for wanting to be in his perspective more because I hate everything that he's done, you know? Right. But he's at the center of this really intriguing point of view that I think will lead a, like, it'll lend a lot to this story. And like, it it feels bad to be excited about that. Yeah. It's, It's this weird headspace that i'm in regarding straff venture and i don't know what to make of it especially because the way the world's been set we've only for the most part occupied the good guys heads so it's it's weird to be exposed to these two perspectives in this one chapter of i mean we had people of questionable morals we had car for one pov out of 98 or something like that like got him for one page (laughs) one chapter (laughs) and i guess we're only one chapter right now for these folks but yeah all right that is it for that chapter we move into the next alendi passage before we end the week but do you have any other thoughts you want to append on the end of this i don't think so okay i think we've done a pretty good job of covering i think so too i think we i think we hit all the notes so uh final logbook of the week opening up the the section for next week as we think about it if only i had passed over lendy when looking for an assistant all those years ago Mm. this is again and no meat on the bones (laughs) there's nothing to go it does it like there's nothing here but except for feel it feels like he's just woe is me i've been thrown into this bad situation and it doesn't feel like he's owning up to any sort of wrongdoing which maybe he didn't do anything wrong but it feels like him trying to prove his innocence in this like he's almost weaseling his way out of it exactly exactly that's how i feel about this like about all of these this section I I don't think I disagree with you at all. I I think especially in this one, this one feels the most like I hired a kid to be an assistant, and he ended up being the hero of ages because I propped him up. My bad. Oh man, if only I hadn't have picked up his resume and looked at it, I would have never have yeah. caused the fucking bullshit. Like, like what? <laughs> he's he's subtly like admitting that he like he's the one that brought it on but he's making it feel like a matter of circumstance yes right right where maybe that's the case but it it feels disingenuous the way that he's presenting it without a doubt yeah yeah couldn't agree more all right man I think that's it for the week on the chapters. With that, we go into PJ's previous predictions. We really only have one to pay off. You kind of paid it off in the middle of the episode. 
and I'm not going to get rid of it per your request, but I just want to cite it here. Vin fighting these eight assassins, pressing through them when a coin from another angle is down and the coin is shot. The coin shot is forced to react. The shot, of course, is fired by the Watcher. Do you have any guesses to who the Watcher, who they are, or their motives? We get the name Zane this week, so I want to pitch that answer to you. What was your response, though? My initial response was... Fuck, I don't know. Is it Kelsier? I was so ready to accept a character's death for once, and now I'm going back on that. Or it's Marsh. That's possible, too. Shit, I have to pick one. Kelsier. And I am going back on that, and I'm saying instead, it's Rain. I believe you later made an assumption that it is Reen. So you did actually later I did. say in a I conversation. The sec- yeah, this... this Quote is from the first episode. Second episode, I went back and said it's Reen. Either way, technically wrong based on what was revealed here. I still think that it's Reen, but I already drank for it. So, Well, you drank for one. Technically, there were two predictions that overlapped. So I'm going (laughs) to beg for you to take a second drink because this one is actually wrong. You said it was Kelsey. Give me a second. I didn't realize that PJ was out of beverage. I apologize, folks. We're, We're holding... When PJ goes and selects a bottle, I think he grabbed the Stearns whiskey. I'm not sure, though. It looked like Stearns. Was it the Stearns? Or 15-year rum. Oh, wow. Holy shit. But that's real good. All right, folks. It's straight from the bottle for that one. PJ earned that. That's such okay. a good rum. Holy cool. Shit. Excellent. So I do want to ask this just as a small follow-up. Now, is he ruled out as dead for you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'm just curious. I, I think yeah. that that's an important clarification to make. I think so. On top of in my question. head, yes. I always want to be on my toes and ready for. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think so. You know, I think I had debated recording on my own the question of the week because we have to record this episode a little bit earlier than we normally would. So I think what we're actually going to do is I, I kind of want to re-ask the same question. We did highlight best boy, best dog, and we get a lot of our sore commentary here once again. I think we'll just ask it twice in a row and yeah, say, that's fine. you know, give us more of your best boy, best dog in companion and all best, of fiction. Best animal companion. Best animal companion in all of fiction. And uh, we'll talk about that in episode four. Sounds good. So... Yeah. With that, next week we are going to be reading chapters 19 through 23. 19 through 23 for those of you following along at home. Don't forget, you can check out our schedule on wordsandwhiskey.com forward slash schedule. That show? That show. Yep. I'm deleting Wordsandwhiskey.show. Wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash schedule. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you to Tim and Andrew, who I love very much. They are both wonderful people, and they make this entire show possible. You can check out our show notes for... Ah, blah, 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 blah. You can check out all the links in our show notes. Uh, you can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one convenient location. If you can't be bothered to just go and look at the show notes, words, words, whiskey pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit words and whiskey show at gmail.com is our email address and patreon.com slash words and whiskey. If you want to support the show in a monetary sense, 
and get a whole lot of bunch of whole lot of bunch of extra like fun things on our discord server and like i don't know we get a you get a lot for being a uh, a patron of the show which including is like a devil's cut in which this week we talk about a number of icebreaker questions, which is fantastic and referenced several times over the course of this episode. But the other thing that I want to tease a little bit is there's something new on the horizon, something that's coming from us, but doesn't involve us, which is new and exciting. What do you mean? What? You know what? exactly what. I don't know what you're talking about. You, I think you, I think you do folks. We've got a couple of exciting things coming up in the next month that we definitely are very excited to talk about and cannot wait to explain exactly what, but keep an eye on all of our social media and maybe, maybe some other social medias. Who knows? You might see it. You might see it elsewhere. It's pretty cool. Hmm. So super, super duper excited to tackle a lot of things. Thank thank you, everyone, for supporting the show. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review if you haven't previously on both Spotify and iTunes. The Spotify reviews help for sharing and for direct linking between shows. The Apple reviews are influential across all platforms. It drives all of our response rates across everything. So if you have an iTunes account and you haven't left a review, you have an iPhone, just download the podcast app, go to our show, hit the five star button, and you can leave. If you want to write us a review, we'd love you even more. But I with that, do that, huh? I got an iPhone now. Yeah, you. Fucking, I can do that now. I should do that. You fucking fool. Get us up to forty reviews. With that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you guys so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye now.